Welcome to the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People with Dr. Stephen R. Covey. In this program, Stephen shows that effectiveness with ourselves and with others is based upon our individual character, not upon quick-fix formulas or manipulative techniques. Stephen also shows how we can better cope with our day-to-day -day challenges and teaches how we can overcome and even rise above our present circumstances. Implementing the seven habits of highly effective people can help to create a happier and more rewarding home and work life with rich and meaningful relationships. Stephen begins now by defining what a habit is and shares how to get the most out of this program. The essential purpose of the seven habits of highly effective people is to learn how to lead your life in a truly effective, successful way. Now let me first describe what the seven habits material is by describing what it is not. It is not a quick fix program. It is not a program of the month. Rather, it is a process of personal and interpersonal growth and development that will require not only your continuing best efforts, but also your patience. You see, you must pay the price over an extended period of time to fully reap the benefits of these habits. By applying this effort, you can expect to increase your capacity to achieve your personal and professional goals and to develop better working relationships with your associates and all of your loved ones. For our purposes, we will define a habit as the intersection of knowledge, skill, and desire. You see, knowledge is the theoretical component. That is the what to do and the why to do it. Skill is the practical side of how to do it. And desire is the motivation side, the want to do it. In order to make something a true habit in our lives, we literally must have all three components. Knowledge, skill, and desire. Now the seven habits are simply common sense. That's common sense organized. But remember, what is common sense is not always common practice. So I encourage you to make the investment, to put forth the time and effort, and to focus on the kinds of changes you can make consistently and over time to develop these habits. The development of the seven habits began with a study that I completed back in 1976. I wanted to study the success idea in America and how it evolved. So I got into the popular success literature and I went back for 200 years. The basic finding of this entire study was this. For the first 150 years, almost the entire focus of the popular success literature was on character, that is, on principles, what we might call the character ethic, attributes such as integrity, fidelity, courage, compassion, contribution, responsibility, justice, service. And then, because of many, many societal forces, as well as moving from the agricultural into the industrial age, the emphasis gradually shifted in the early 1900s, particularly in the 20s and 30s, away from the character ethic 
to what we might call the personality ethic, which focuses more on techniques and technologies than on principles, on how to appear to be rather than on how to truly be. The motto of North Carolina is most interesting, to be rather than to seem. That motto symbolizes this shift from the character ethic to the personality ethic. And now that we have moved through the industrial age and we are into the more advanced information age, this very trend has accelerated. And yet, because of the powerful changes that are taking place in the global marketplace and with the new technologies, there is a pronounced new shift back to the character ethic simply for the purposes of pragmatic survival, to maintain competitive viability, I have never seen a closer relationship between pragmatics and ethics. That is one of the reasons why there is such an enormous and increasing interest in this material on the seven habits, all surrounding those principles that are central to the character ethic. You know, one time I had a student come to me and say, How am I doing in your class? I looked him in the eye and responded, You really know how you're doing, don't you? A lot better than I do. How are you doing? And he kind of looked down squeamishly and said, Well, not too good, I guess. I've just had kind of a rough time lately, and, and maybe... Maybe I haven't applied myself as much as I should have. I responded, You really came to visit with me to find out how well you had psyched me out, how well you'd psyched out the system, isn't that right? When in fact, you kind of know in your heart how you're really doing. Let's focus on what's really happening, not on what's appearing to happen or what we hope someone might think is happening. That little story somewhat illustrates this personality ethic, because its focus is basically a technique and an image focus. It's like the tip of an iceberg, the tip or that part which is seen on the surface by others. It's above the water. The character ethic is like the great mass of the iceberg under the water. You see, people often do no work on the foundation where the great mass is and where the greatest long-term impact is. Too many people give all their energy and focus to the tip of the iceberg. That is to learning techniques that others can see. But this material is based on an inside-out approach. In other words, it starts with the foundation and then moves to the personality. That's why we give our first energies to character development before we focus on techniques and how to be more effective with others. Next, Stephen describes the sequential nature of the seven habits and shows how the first three habits develop the necessary character strength to be more effective with others. He also shows how we can achieve mutually desired results by combining our talents, abilities, and best efforts with that of others. I think it will help us to visualize 
the sequential and progressive nature of the seven habits by seeing a simple little diagram in your mind's eye we could call the maturity continuum. In fact, if you have an opportunity and you're not driving right now, take a few moments to locate this diagram in your little booklet, in your listener's guide, and refer to it as we discuss it. That'll help you get into the habits. Now, if you were to see a maturity continuum line from low maturity to high maturity, there would be three basic levels to it. The first level is dependence. The second, the middle level, is independence. And the third and the highest level is interdependence. Let me define these three terms very briefly. Dependence basically means that you need others to get what you want. Dependence is the attitude of you. You take care of me. You come through for me. Or you don't come through for me. Then I blame you for the results. It's very you-oriented. Independence basically means that you are pretty much free of external influence, that is, the control and the support of others. You can get what you want from your own efforts. Independence is the attitude of I. I can do it. I am responsible. I'm self-reliant. I can choose. The third and highest level in the maturity continuum is interdependence. You see, if people were interdependent, they would think in terms of we, because it's a basic approach of needing other people to accomplish with you what you desire, like a marriage, a family, an executive team, where they simply need to cooperate together in order to accomplish what I want, what you want, what we want together. Again, interdependence is the attitude of we. We can cooperate. We can be a team. We can combine our talents, our abilities, and our best efforts to achieve our highest success. Now here is the basic insight. Think on this for a moment. Until you and I are independent, we cannot be interdependent. Now let me say that again. Until you and I are independent, we cannot be interdependent. In other words, we can't do calculus before we understand algebra. We can't run before we learn to walk. We can neither learn to work cooperatively with another person if we don't have internal self-mastery, true independence. That's why the first three habits, be proactive, begin with the end in mind, and put first things first, deal with self-mastery self-control, and self-dominion. They form the deepest part of our character. They constitute what I call the private victory, that is, the victory over self. These first three habits lead us from dependence to independence. Then once people have control over themselves, I don't mean an absolutely perfect control, but a high measure of independence they are ready to deal with the next three habits, which we call think-win-win. Seek first to understand, then to be understood, and synergize. And all of these help us in our relationships with others, enabling us to be successful with them. Thus, these habits, four, five, and six, develop what I call the public victory, 
that is, effectiveness with others. The public victory is based on teamwork, on cooperation, on communication. In fact, on creative cooperation based on communication. Habits 4, 5, and 6 utilize our personality, and they are more skill-based. These public victory habits lead us from independence to interdependence. That is, the attitude of we. We cooperate. We work together. We create together to accomplish common desired results. Then habit seven, sharpen the saw, is the habit of renewal, of regular balanced renewal in all the dimensions of our lives, which surrounds and encompasses all of the other habits and nurtures their continued development. Habit seven, sharpen the saw, is the habit of continuous improvement that creates an upward spiral of growth and development. And then we begin to discover the underlying six habits in entirely new ways, and we achieve entirely new levels of performance with each of those habits. Principles are changeless. They remain the same year after year, century after century. They govern our lives and control the consequences of our actions. Stephen now discusses how we can develop greater effectiveness at home and work by aligning our personal and organizational values with principles or the natural laws of effectiveness. For a moment, let's think now what the real nucleus of each of these habits is. It is a principle. Let's think about what that means, principle. You see, a principle is the actual reality, like the law of gravity, of the way things are. For instance, how many of you, when you were in school, did a lot of cramming? Think about it. Be honest with yourself. Did you get good at it? Now, have you ever worked on a farm? Did you ever cram on the farm? I don't mean just work hard at the end to bring in the harvest. I mean to forget to plant in the spring, to flake off all summer, and then to really hit it hard in the fall to bring in the harvest. Well, of course, that's patently foolish. And we know why. Because a farm is a natural system. It is governed by principles. You see, principles are natural laws. Now, this is pretty obvious when it comes to a farm. But what about the development of our mind? What would you say that is? Is it based upon social values, that which represents common behavior, or would it be based upon natural laws or principles? Is it possible that you can get a degree from school and not get an education? Of course it is. Why? Because the development of the mind is based on principles, the law of the farm, the law of the harvest, not on social values, however popular certain behavior patterns may be. So all aspects of our health, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, are governed by the laws of the harvest, by principles and not by popular social values. Now this is an extremely important idea, and this idea lies at the very heart of each of these habits. You can't really fake these habits. 
you have to pay the price. You can't fake any true growth and development. We're dealing with principles, with realities. You see, in a sense, we are not in control. Often the popular social language is get in control. You are the master of your own destiny, when in fact we are not in control. Principles control. Now, if we accept that and follow these principles, then in that sense, we are in control. In that sense, we are the master of our destiny. But that is a humility sense because it respects that principles ultimately govern, not social values. We control our actions, but the consequences that flow from those actions are controlled by principles. As Abraham Lincoln once put it, people will pass away, but principles never will. Principles live on forever. This is why we believe so much in the Eastern statement, give a man a fish and you feed him for the day. Teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. See, even though you may teach someone a practice, something to do, always try to teach the principle which underlies that practice, that action. Because, you see, the situation may change and the practice may no longer apply. But the principle will remain constant. It will always apply. You see, principles are universal. They are natural laws. They are also self-evident, self-validating. They are changeless. They ultimately govern. Values don't govern. Principles ultimately govern. The key is to align our values, our habits, our behavior with principles. And when they are so aligned, you could almost use the words values and principles interchangeably. Next, Stephen defines the word paradigm and how changing our paradigm or the way that we see the world can result in major improvements in our personal, family, and work life. Now I'd like to introduce you to another key word, paradigm. Paradigm is a scientific term. Simply, it means a mental image that you have in your mind of the way things are out there. These are the images we carry in our head of reality. And these images come from our backgrounds, our own experiences. They represent the implicit assumptions of our lives. See, all of us think we see the world as it is, but in reality, we see the world as we are. We project out of our own conditioning experiences our background, a certain representation, a certain model, a certain set of expectations, a certain assumption on what reality is out there. And we think that's the way it is. I might describe myself, I might describe you, I might describe a situation as if I were describing it as it is. In fact, I am describing myself, that is, my perceptions of you and me and situations. It's my frame of reference, my worldview, my value system, my autobiography. In other words, I am describing myself and then projecting it upon the outside. Let me illustrate this from an experience I had in a very large metropolitan city 
It was Sunday morning, very quiet and sedate feeling. There was a bunch of young kids ran into the subway, and their father followed. The father sits right next to me, and the kids just go crazy on that subway, running up and down, turning people's papers aside. They're very, very rude, very raucous. I'm sitting there, and inwardly I'm saying, I can't believe this. This father right next to me does nothing. Now notice my attitude. I try to exercise some control over it so that I am not too obviously critical. But look, what can I see? But after a few minutes, my attitude went into my behavior. And I just said to this gentleman, Sir, do you think you could control your children a little? They're very upsetting to people. Oh, yeah, yeah. He lifted his head as if he came to an awareness of what was happening. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess I should. I, we just left the hospital, and their mother died just about an hour ago, and I guess they don't know how to take it, and frankly, I don't either. Now imagine the paradigm shift that took place. See, my whole view of reality shifted. As you listen to this story, you probably also experienced this paradigm shift because this new information gets you to see the whole situation differently. We call that shifting a paradigm. You see, attitude and behavior flow from our paradigms, how we see reality. Well, I saw that whole situation differently when I had this new information. And that totally changed my attitude and my behavior. My only desire was to try to help, to better understand, and also to try to serve him in some ways. And I did, in fact, serve him in various ways for a while. But see, the thing that impressed me was the 180-degree shift in the way I saw the whole situation and how that impacted my attitude and my behavior. It just teaches you forcibly that how you see something affects how you feel, that is your attitude, and what you do, that is your behavior. Can you see why paradigms are much deeper than attitude or behavior? Most development programs focus upon attitude and behavior. And both of these, of course, are very important. But far more fundamental than either attitude or behavior is a paradigm. In fact, I believe that the greatest way and the quickest way to change another person's behavior is to change their paradigm. In other words, to change how they see themselves, to change the map that they have of themselves. That is the quickest way to change a person's behavior. You ask, how do you change that? Just change their name, change their role, and you've changed their paradigm. For instance, as soon as you became a father or a mother, did you not see the world differently? I mean entirely differently. When you changed your name and your role to manager for the first time, did you not see the world differently? You see, that's a new paradigm, a new map. When you became a leader, did you not see the world differently? You see, your role has changed. You see the world differently. The quickest way to change a person's behavior is to change their paradigm. That is, how they define themselves, how they see their role, even perhaps to change their name. Don't work on their behavior. Don't work on their attitude. Just change how they see their role, how they see their responsibility, their stewardship. The seven habits are habits of effectiveness. 
Stephen next relates Aesop's fable of the goose and the golden egg to illustrate how consistent effectiveness is always achieved through a balance of the results we seek and the assets that produce these results. Okay, we've talked a little about the concept of a principle and the concept of a paradigm. Now let's define what we mean by effectiveness. You see, we're talking about the seven habits of highly effective people. Not mediocre effectiveness. We're talking about high-level effectiveness. That is, quantum leaps in effectiveness. Now what do we mean by effectiveness? We could use the word success, you know, but that word carries so much of the old social value connotation of having it all. That's why we use the word effectiveness. We want to create a new image, a new sense of what that means because we're talking about seven habits of highly effective people. To define this, let's think about Aesop and his famous tales, particularly about the one of a poor farmer that is just down on his luck. Everything is falling apart, yet the farmer visits his favorite goose and he notices one day there is a large egg, a golden egg by the side of that goose. To his total amazement and delight, he discovered that the egg is pure gold. And he's been so poor for so long. The next day, he finds another one, and the next day, another one. Every day, there's another golden egg. And he becomes wealthy, fabulously wealthy. But he also becomes very impatient and very greedy. He wants them all, and he wants them now. So he kills the goose. He reaches inside to get all of the golden eggs and, of course, finds none. Now, in that little fable is the essence of the definition of effectiveness. Effectiveness is made up basically of two things. First, getting what you want. And second, getting what you want in a way that enables you to get what you want again and again and again. We call it PPC balance. P stands for production of desired results, you know, the golden eggs. And PC stands for production capability. That means the health and welfare of the goose. In other words, the capacity of the asset to continue to produce the results, or the capacity of the goose to continue to produce golden eggs. Now you can apply this idea of balance between production and production capability to any field of human endeavor. How many of you have had, say, a PPC imbalance with regard to the way you take care of your physical assets, your car, your lawnmower? Ever neglected one of these? It takes time and attention and money to attend to production capability, to PC. But sometimes when we're in a rush and we want what we want now, we just go ahead and run that machine or that car with no thought to its maintenance. No production capability attention at all. Eventually, no more golden eggs. The goose dies. Well, what about our bodies? How many of you have the regular practice of a good exercise program? How many know that you should? We all do. Well, ultimately, what will happen if we neglect our exercise or this production capability with our body? Well, all kinds of negative things happen. As we know, the immune system gets weakened sometimes, and it makes us vulnerable to all kinds of other diseases. 
What about the mind? What about the development of the mind? It takes constant learning, or we can become so obsolete so fast that if we don't pay the price on a daily basis to stay abreast of our fields, we will suffer in every way. It's estimated that most professions have the half-life of about four years. So you can see that effectiveness with oneself, with body, mind, even with one's spirit, is a PPC balance. This is the essence of effectiveness. The same thing applies to relationships. Take a marriage relationship. You may have a situation like I saw a while back, a very successful person. He went from nothing to being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Yet he had a totally bankrupt family. And the question's asked, was this person truly successful? To use our language, effective. Well, in the business sense, maybe you'd say yes. But in the total sense, in terms of what really matters on one's deathbed, you'd probably say no. Production capability was utterly neglected in his marriage and family. Can you see why effectiveness at home requires this P-PC balance? What about business? What happens when you neglect the goose, the PC of business? I remember a clam chatter house that literally was so popular you could hardly get near the place from about 11 in the morning until 2 in the afternoon. I mean, people would not only buy it for their lunch, they would buy a big bucket of it for their dinner and take it home. It was so good. It was so popular. Then new management came in, and no one knew about the change of management, so they used the same name, everything else, but they watered down the clam chowder. Now guess what happened to the bottom line for a month or so? It took off. Why? They saved all that cost, all that expense in the quality put into the clam chowder. But eventually, it liquidated the loyalty of their customer base. It liquidated it little by little. The goose died. They tried to recover it, to revive it. But by that time, there was such a violation of trust with the public, people would not go back. They simply didn't trust them anymore. They wouldn't even believe those who said it was the same clam chatter as before. Why? They felt violated. That's so often the case in human organizations. I mean, really, you can liquidate human resources by practices that focus almost exclusively on the production of desired results, the golden eggs, but neglects production capability, that is, neglects the goose. What about the employee who serves the customer? How can you neglect the production capability with that person? Just cut out training, cut out careful selection and orientation. And with business generally, you could cut out institutional advertising. You could cut out research and development. In fact, you could cut out any form of people development. And for a period of time, you could double, even quadruple, the bottom line of any organization. Just cut out all the production capability, the PC. And for a quarter or two, what's it going to look like? Well, look at all the golden eggs you've just been raking in. In fact, you can apply this fundamental principle of production capability with every stakeholder in business. Just ask yourself this question. How well is the relationship with the stakeholder sustaining the capacity to produce what we want from that stakeholder? Whether it be a supplier, a community, the environment out there, distributors, dealers, and of course, the obvious stakeholders of customers, owners, and employees. You really have to ask that question. You see, in the long run, the ultimate PPC balance, in a sense, the ultimate universal mission statement, is to increase the economic well-being and quality of life 
of all stakeholders. You see, if you neglect one stakeholder, I'll guarantee you it'll have a negative domino effect upon all of the rest eventually. That's why the achievement of this PPC balance is so important, so foundational in all that we do. Stephen continues his discussion of effectiveness by describing how we can improve the quality of our family and work relationships and create happier and more productive home and work environments by making constant deposits into the emotional bank accounts of others. Now let's shift for a moment to applying this whole way of thinking to relationships, the relationships we have with each other. I'd like to use a metaphor. I call it the emotional bank account. You know what a financial bank account is. If you were my banker and I were to make many large deposits into your bank account, it would get larger and larger. I could even take withdrawals because of this large reserve capacity. The emotional bank account is like that as well. The emotional bank account describes the amount of trust, the social capital, that's been built up in a relationship. So if I make deposits into the emotional bank account with, say, my spouse or my children over a period of time through courtesy and kindness and keeping my commitments, that would little by little build a reserve capacity with them. Their trust toward me becomes higher and higher. I could even make some mistakes, but that trust level, that emotional reserve, will compensate for it. Unless they're too large and too continuous mistakes, then it would totally drain the emotional bank account. But if I have a high emotional bank account, these small mistakes would be ignored. They wouldn't make me an offender for a word or for the smallest dumb thing that I do, simply because they understand and they care because they know I understand and I care. But on the other hand, if I have cultivated a pattern of what I call emotional bank account withdrawals, such as discourtesy, unkindness, disrespect, cutting you off, overreacting, ignoring you, threatening you, betraying your trust, not fulfilling all my commitments to you, eventually I would get into an overdrawn emotional bank account. In fact, sometimes if you just make one huge mistake or withdrawal, that violates the deepest sense of our agreement. In one fell swoop, the whole emotional bank account could be overdrawn, such as violating a basic promise to another. Then the trust level gets very low, and you have no flexibility. It's like walking on minefields. You have to be so careful. You have to be watching your backside, everything that you say and do. You have to measure every word I mean, it's tension city around the home or at the office. People live in memo haven. I mean, really, many families and organizations are filled with that kind of a climate. Now consider the opposite. How many of you have a relationship with someone that is really strained, where the trust isn't there, where the emotional bank account is overdrawn? Now what happens when you communicate? What happens even when you're very clear in your communication? Still, communication won't work. It won't take. Why? They're always looking for hidden agendas. They're reading between the lines. What's going on here, really? What's happening? How's he manipulating me or whatever? And if you make a small mistake, that small thing can be blown all out of proportion. Literally, many organizations, even families, are filled with this kind of spirit. It is very interesting. 
with those people with whom we have continuing relationships, frequent contacts, you have to be constantly making deposits into their emotional bank account simply because the expectation of a continuing relationship based on integrity and sincerity and kindness and respect is there. Let me share with you a few examples of deposits and withdrawals into the emotional bank accounts. Do you know what the most important and first deposit to make with another person is? It is simply to understand another person from within their frame of reference. Why? Until you understand how other people see a deposit or a withdrawal, you won't know what kind of kindness or courtesy matters to them. You won't know what commitment matters to them. You see, the key to every deposit you make is to make those deposits within their frame of reference, not yours. But it's a common tendency to just simply project your motive onto another, assuming that what would be a deposit with us would be a deposit to them as well. Not so. You see, you're a subjective person, and so are other people. We all live in our own special little world. The way we look outside our body, outside our head, outside our eyes, is very unique. That's why it's so important to first understand what deposits are to other people, and what are the withdrawals, and what are the highest deposits, and what are the highest withdrawals. One of the deposits that I religiously make is sometime during my week at home because I work a crazy schedule. I work a week up in the Arctic and then I come home for a week. During my week off, I've always had a weekend date with my wife, always. We always go somewhere, even if it's just you know dinner and a movie or, or sometimes we'll drive into Anchorage and, and uh, see a show, but it's always something that we, we go out and do together. One deposit for me is when people do listen to my input. Some things I do to uh, make deposits to my children is to spend time with them on their homework, to praise them, to compliment them on, the, on their homework, uh, to compliment them on little things that they do. So remember now, the first and most important deposit to another person's emotional bank account is to understand from within their frame of reference what deposits are to them. Another obvious deposit is the making and keeping promises to another. You first know what promises are important to the other. Then you make it. Now remember this, the moment you make a promise to someone, you've created a hope. And the moment you've created a hope, people start to anticipate. They become very open, very vulnerable. So you better come through. But you know, many insecure people make promises very easily because they love the early psychic feeling of other people being happy with them. Other people saying, oh, that's so exciting. We're going to do this. We're going to go on this trip. We're going to go out to dinner. Dad promised me last Saturday that we would go and visit that gym next Saturday. Dad promised me, see, look at the hope. Look at the anticipation. I mean, look at the vulnerability. See, then when it isn't kept, disillusionment sets in. And if you've broken a lot of promises... People simply won't believe the promises to begin with. Now, when it comes to a really important promise to another person, always count the cost before you make it. You might even qualify what you say with this kind of language. I can't really give a promise, 
All I can say is, if the situation is favorable in this particular way, I will give it a good try. Now, the person will be a little disappointed initially, but remember, you're not into a popularity contest. You're not into some immediate satisfaction. You're into building trust. Trust is greater in the initial stages than being liked. And generally speaking, when you come through based on trust, you will become beloved. Breaking promises or not even making them, that is also a massive withdrawal because people want the pleasant and marvelous feeling of anticipating some event. In fact, I find with my children that the anticipation of the event is as satisfying as the event itself. So don't get to the point where you don't make promises because you're afraid of not keeping them. No, make them. But make these promises very carefully. Make them sparingly. Particularly when you're dealing with promises that are really important to another, that are really foundational. Another obvious deposit is just simple kindness. When we show our kindness by just being courteous, by being grateful and appreciative, by saying, thank you, please, what's your opinion? Can I help you? These are small words, small acts, but in relationships, the small things are the big things. You see, ultimately, these small kindnesses, this gentility, this consideration, this respect, builds huge deposits. Similarly, small discourtesies, small unkindnesses, little forms of disrespect, eventually create huge withdrawals from the emotional bank account. Again, in relationships, the little things are the big things. Let's examine another very important deposit and identify both the deposit and the withdrawal. The deposit I would call clarifying expectations. The withdrawal would be having ambiguous expectations or violating expectations. In fact, you will find that the root cause of almost all breakdowns in family life, in organizational work, comes from ambiguous, confusing, or violated expectations. Think about that. You see, here's one of the problems. If the expectations are ambiguous, both parties are acting in good faith based on their own hope and expectation. Then as they act upon that, and they find the other is not fulfilling the expectation, they begin to feel a violation coming in. And if they don't resolve this, come to grips with it, communicate and clarify it, then what happens is it worsens, and you get into a negative cycle that feeds upon itself. Sometimes this is called collusion. And as you move from an ambiguous expectation to a violated expectation, now you're moving into major forms of withdrawal from the emotional bank account. And this exactly explains how relationships can be beautiful at the beginning and deteriorate fairly rapidly into one of toleration, into one of fighting and flighting, cold wars, hot wars. And you know what form of expectations become most important? It's how you define roles and goals. That's where you want to make clear what the expectations are. Who has what responsibility, what role, and what are the important goals that we're working on? 
you know, you've heard people talk like this. I, I thought that was the important. That's not the real goal. The goal is, I can't believe you're doing that. I thought that was my role. You did? I've been, I've been doing that all the time, and you thought, I can't believe. The problem is most people don't even talk openly with each other, and they just work on the assumption that the other people are violating their expectations. Then the relationship deteriorates. That's why it is so important that you are very clear up front in defining roles and goals so that you have correct mutual understanding and expectation. Who has this particular role? Who has this role? What goals are we working together on? Sometimes it's helpful to even write all this down so that the expectations are very clear, very understandable, not ambiguous at all. And then to set up times where people review how things are going before they deteriorate so that corrections can be made, so that correct expectations can be reestablished, and you don't get into the accusatory attitude which inevitably follows the feeling of having expectations that have been violated. I'll tell you another extremely important and powerful deposit. I call it being loyal to the absent. That means talking about people when they are absent in a way that you would talk about them as if they were present. The opposite of this is to badmouth, to get into different forms of duplicity and disloyalty. Maybe you've heard the expression, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. In other words, when you're trying to walk east and west at the same time, every part of your life will reflect that double-mindedness, such as saying one thing to a person's face and another thing about them to their back. Now, what are we loyal to? Well, we are loyal to principles, first and foremost. And the most central principle is that we are loyal to people who are not present. Now, let's put these things together. Let's say that the two of us sit and talk about, oh, let's say, your husband's mistakes and weaknesses. And you and I are friends. We see each other in some kind of carpool or at work or whatever, and we sit and talk this way. How would your husband feel about that? And how would you feel about it if your husband did this? And furthermore, how might you be talking about me if you and I had a strain in our relationship? Again, you see, if you want to retain those who are present, always be loyal to those who are absent. In other words, be loyal to correct principles about those people. The principle being, talk about them as if they were present. You might even be critical. But the nature of your criticism is responsible and constructive. This causes you to moderate your spirit, to cultivate humility. It affects your tone, your voice, and how much more responsible and careful you are. This is a tough duty deposit because many people get their psychological jollies in talking about other people's weaknesses and confessing their sins. And it seems to unite them with people who agree with them. But in the last analysis, it's a very bad foundation. To use the construction expression, it's bad mud. The brick is made of bad mud. All you have to do is stress it, and it itself will break. It's a tremendous assumption to work upon. Always assume that what you're saying about another, they can overhear. I was violating this deposit one time myself when I was complaining to a university president where I was a visiting professor about his housing director who'd given us a very bad housing situation, which was contrary to our agreement and the expectation. 
and I was really cutting into this guy and his competency in the present said to me, Stephen, I'm so sorry to hear about this housing situation you're in. You know, the housing director is such a fine, competent person. Why don't we just have him come on over here and we'll solve the problem together? Oh, boy, I said inside myself, I don't want to be involved. I really don't want to talk to him. I just want to talk about him. Present was matter-of-fact to me and very pleasant as he invited the gentleman to come on over to his office to talk about this. But I'll tell you, when I was thinking about it as he was walking across campus, I said to myself, oh, what have I got myself into? Anyway, by the time he arrived to the president's office, I was very humbled and filled with a kind of duplicity. How are you? Nice to see you. The president could see this duplicity. I mean, ten minutes before, I was calling him an incompetent. He never carries through with his commitment. And there I'm saying, how are you? You see, a double-minded person is unstable all his ways, and I was double-minded. It taught me a very powerful lesson that I never forgot and my respect for that president went up tenfold. Always be loyal to the absent. Let's explore another extremely important deposit to the emotional bank account. We could call this giving and receiving feedback. The opposite would be the withdrawal. We could call that don't get feedback, don't receive it. Now remember, when you do give feedback, Give it in the form of an I message, not a you message, which would be a withdrawal. Let me illustrate. When you're giving feedback, you would say, my perception is, my feeling is, my concern is, instead of, you are so inconsiderate, you are so dominating, you are so selfish. Now just sense the tone that comes from an I message which accurately describes how you see it and how you feel about it, and a you message which attempts to play God like some kind of a judge of another person's character. To illustrate, one time my wife and I were discussing a selfish pattern we saw in one of our sons. It had been going on for a long period of time, and it was really offending a lot of people, including ourselves. And we could have easily given quick feedback, but it would have come out in terms of you. So I said to myself, I've really got to pay the price in order to cultivate the ability to share an I message. We were on a family vacation, and I asked him if he wanted to go for a ride around the lake. We went for this very long ride, and we stopped and had drinks out of freshwater streams and so forth, and we were gone for a long period of time, hours. But I'm telling you, the richness of our communication, our relationship, the depth, the laughter, the fun was very, very real. At the end, I said to him, Son, one of the reasons I wanted to visit with you and the reason why I wanted to take this time to get this great feeling between us is because your mother and I have a real concern we would like to share. Now notice, we were describing ourselves, not him. That's what effective feedback is. It is a description of yourself. The opposite is where you're trying to describe the other. You are so selfish. See, you're trying to describe the other like you're the ultimate judge of that person. That's the thing that people resent. It offends them deeply. They feel labeled. They feel judged. They're categorized. And thus they become a thing, no longer a person. Instead, I said to him, Son, would you mind if I shared a concern with you that your mother and I feel? Not at all, Dad. And I shared it. I also shared my perception of his true nature as being a selfless and giving person. 
You know what his immediate response was? I don't know. I guess I've just been into myself so much, and that's just, that's just not been right. He also acknowledged that when we returned to his mother and to others around, and he began a process and a program of really turning around this whole selfish pattern, it was real. It was sincere. It also worked because we were sincere and because we had this great relationship before we attempted to give feedback. But if you take the efficient approach of just getting to the point and giving a you message, it will be ineffective. You see, with people, efficiency is often ineffective because slow is fast and fast is slow. So what if it took three hours? We've been living with this problem for months. So you see how important patience, self-control becomes in giving these kinds of deposits. Another powerful deposit is just what we might call patience and persuasion, rather than physical force and coercion. You see, there are so many ways you can influence people. The traditional influence is called, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. It's a kind of fairness principle. You know, I did this for you, now will you do this for me? Another very common approach is just simply to use your power. Whether it be position power, money power, physical power, or the use of whatever power, so that you come in with something that is strong and you have the power to make it happen. Now it happens. It's efficient. In the short run, you can usually get your way. The problem is that in the use of that kind of power, that force, that coercion, you have, in a sense, violated a relationship, a person, a trust. And you also built more dependency in you and in the other on that power. The opposite is patience, softness, gentle persuasion, empathic listening, basic respect. In other words, you're showing great love in every possible way. The cumulative effect of these kinds of qualities at the end of the day have a marvelous effect in relationships and enables you, perhaps at appropriate moments, to give feedback, even to become very strong in the giving of feedback, where you reprove a person sharply. But even in that situation, you immediately show a great deal of respect and kindness afterwards because down deep in their heart, they know what you think of them. And what you think of them matters much more than some mistake which they're becoming corrected for. Patience and persuasion is an extremely important deposit. Patience is an active verb. It's not some passive quality, but a very dynamic, active quality in which it embodies the essence of faith, hope, and charity. We all violate these things from time to time. That's why we must cultivate another capacity, another kind of deposit, a simple ability to apologize, to apologize with true sincerity. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I embarrassed you in front of your friends. Please forgive me. I got on an ego trip. That was unkind of me. I apologize. That was a terrible mistake. I wish I hadn't have said that. I apologize. The opposite, of course, would be a withdrawal to be so prideful and arrogant to not apologize, but to just continue to defend and justify the behavior, to explain, you know, to cover up in some way. 
And people can sense that. You're going through some kind of a song and dance, and you're maybe apologizing half-heartedly, like saying, I'll say I'm sorry if you'll say you're sorry. Let's both say it at the same time. Sorry. I said it first. Yeah, but you, you didn't say it like you meant it. That kind of insincerity and, and manipulation and superficial apologizing doesn't work because it isn't truly based upon character, upon deep, sincere integrity. It's better to go all the way and to say, when I embarrass you in front of your friends, that was absolutely wrong of me. I'm going to apologize to your friends as well. I never should have done that. I'm going to work to see that I do not do it again, and if I do, please bring it to my attention, and I'll apologize again. We constantly need to apologize because we constantly make mistakes. Now, sometimes people offend us, and they don't apologize. And this gets to the deeper part of our character. If we can learn to forgive when we have been offended, whether it be intentional or unintentional, that is an extremely powerful deposit. The withdrawal that worsens relationships and undermines your own self-esteem is to hold a grudge and to let it build up inside until it congeals. And then it begins to fester and manifest itself on the surface of your life. And it becomes a fundamentally deep, rupturing problem in relationships. You see, it isn't the snake that bites us that does the serious harm. It's chasing that snake that drives the poison to the heart. Far more damage is done in not forgiving than was ever done in the original offense. Now, the interesting thing about this is that if we have been offended, we should take the initiative. You see, most people will not do that. They'll sit and wait for someone else to take the initiative. And the reason why we do that is because our security comes too much from how we're treated. Then people get easily offended, and then they get into prejudices and labels and cutting humor, sarcasm and cynicism. It all protects them. But what if you could cultivate an internal source of personal security? You wouldn't need these emotional, mental defenses to protect yourself. You could afford to be more open and vulnerable. You could afford to forgive and allow people to change and to start a new day. In fact, to see them differently every day, to give them new chances every day. You don't hold grudges. You don't have to protect and get defensive. All of that is so unhealthy it undermines the development of our relationships, our families, our organizations. That's why it's so important, in addition to our own kind of apology, so that we can learn to change ourselves. we need to allow other people to also change. We need to constantly forgive others, to let it go, to get the poison out, to forgive and forget. <laughs> Stephen now begins teaching the principles associated with the seven habits of highly effective people. First, he discusses habit one, be proactive, and this habit's underlying principle of taking individual responsibility for our life and choices. Now, let us begin with the foundational habit, habit one, be proactive. 
Have it one, be proactive, basically means that your life is a product of your values, not your feelings. Again, that your life is a product of your values, not your feelings. Your life is a product of your decisions, not your conditions. To be proactive means you take the initiative to do whatever's necessary to make good things happen. In other words, you're the creative force of your own life. To use the computer metaphor, habit one is the awareness that you are the programmer. It is the budding awareness that the best way to predict your future is to create it. The opposite of being proactive is to be reactive, which basically means that your life is a function of your feelings, your moods, your impulses, or how other people treat you, such as taking out your anger on work associates or loved ones at home because you feel so frustrated. You feel victimized. You feel like you're under the control of other forces. Other people are doing it to you. They're doing you in. So you feel you have ample justification and reason to essentially say, I am what other people have made of me. I am what my past has made of me. I am what is happening to me from all around today. See, and then not to take responsibility. I grew up in a family that was very reactive. So it was a very painful and conscious process as an adult for me to learn to be a proactive person. In my family, when there's a conflict, you fight. You yell, you scream, whoever's loudest wins, and you don't talk for three days. And then it just gets glossed over and you go on with your lives and it's never mentioned again. And when I started dating my husband, he did something that made me really mad. And so, of course, I yelled and I screamed and was very voracious about it. And he just listened to me very carefully and nodded and said, I'm sorry, that was really inconsiderate of me. And I didn't know what to do. I said, I don't know what to do now. No one ever gave me that kind of response. You're supposed to yell back, see? And then we do this for a couple of days and it's over. And so that was a very clear picture that uh, between the stimulus and the response, I, I had something to do there. I had a choice to make. Habit one is the habit of awareness that I am a separate person from all that has happened to me, including all of my feelings, my moods, even my genetic makeup, and so forth. The underlying principle of habit one, be proactive, is to take responsibility. The concept is... You and I have the capacity to choose our response. I am responsible. I am response-able. But see, it's much easier to say, I am not responsible, than to say, I'm irresponsible. Again, let's define habit one. Be proactive as the capacity to subordinate impulses, words, feelings, conditions to values based on principles. You know we're tested every day in many little ways in the ordinary things in our life. And if we are proactive in those things, it gradually develops extraordinary capability in handling major setbacks or disappointments. We learn that we have the power to choose our attitude. We have the power to choose our own response in any given set of circumstances we can do nothing about. For instance, Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, imprisoned in the death camps of Nazi Germany because he was a Jew experienced unbelievable indignities and tortures. 
He was raised in the Freudian tradition that you're basically a product of your childhood and that you can do nothing about it. While he was in the death camps, he began to observe some very interesting things. Some people acted as animals and others acted as saints in the same circumstances. He himself experienced terrible things. Some of his own loved ones were cremated, and he expected perhaps the same fate for himself, but for some reason they saved him for experimental purposes. One day they stripped him naked, put him under white light, and began to perform those ignoble sterilization experiments upon his body. This is when he discovered what he called the last of the human freedoms, that is, the power to choose one's own response to any condition, to anything that happens. And he cultivated a sense of meaning and self-awareness so that during his very torture, he saw himself in his imagination lecturing to his students in Austria following his release from the death camps about the very experiences he was having at the time, about the insights and learnings he was acquiring. And he came to postulate that the highest value of all is the choose-your-attitude in situations over which you have no control. In other words, between what happens to us, the stimulus, and our response to the stimulus is a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in those choices lie our growth and our happiness. Let me say that again, because this is so fundamental. Between what happens to us, the stimulus, and our response to the stimulus is a space. In that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in those choices lie our growth and our happiness. This is what Viktor Frankl discovered, and through exercising his memory, that is, his self-awareness, and his imagination, and his conscience, by asking questions such as, what is this situation asking of me, instead of, what do I ask of it? Why are they doing this to me? And so forth. And also by exercising his own independent will, this freedom within became greater and greater until his freedom was in a sense greater than his Nazi captors, not his liberty. You see, liberty is a condition of the environment, of the external environment. Freedom is a condition of the person, of one's internal power to exercise options. We have control over our freedom, but we do not, in the short run, have control over our liberty. However, in many situations, not necessarily all, the more you control your freedom and expand and deepen it, eventually it will influence the liberty in your life, that is, the options, the alternatives that are available to you. In other words, eventually your head will create your world. Your response to the stimulus will eventually influence the stimulus, and to some degree, Viktor Frankl experienced that. Dr. Frankel also tried to look at the hypothesis of what enabled these people in the death camps to survive. Was it their survival skills? No, that was secondary. Was it their intelligence? Again, secondary. Was it their present health? Again, secondary. These things were eventually equalized and lost. They helped a little initially, but eventually they were gone. The thing that enabled survival was a vision of the future, a sense of meaning, about a work yet to do, 
a contribution yet to make. And this became the basis for his brilliant autobiographical account of these experiences called Man's Search for Meaning. So we must not let the things we can do nothing about interfere with the things we can do a great deal about. Because remember, between stimulus and response is our greatest power, our freedom to choose. This completes the first CD. Please insert the second CD to continue with the program. can divide events and circumstances into two categories, those we can affect or influence by our choices, either directly or indirectly, and those we cannot affect or influence at all. Stephen illustrates how working within our circle of influence is the only way we can effectively produce desired results and truly influence and lead those at home. I'd now like to teach another idea that to me is so exciting about this idea of proactivity. Imagine, if you will, two circles. One a larger outer circle we call the circle of concern. And the second, a smaller inner circle, we call the circle of influence. The circle of influence basically means those are things you can do something about. You can have influence upon them or control over them, such as your health, your family, your work. The circle of concern the outer circle represents things you can do nothing about, such as the weather, international events, the force of nature, and so forth. Where does the proactive person focus? The inner circle. And what do you think happens to this inner circle? It gets larger and larger. And you're more and more able to influence. But where does the reactive person focus? On the outer circle. That is the circle of concern. Things outside themselves of which they feel they have no control or influence at all. Let me share with you one of the most powerful, instructive, illuminating experiences along this line of habit one, be proactive, that I've ever had. I worked for an organization for four years and was the assistant to the president. The president was a very dynamic, visionary person. He's very talented, very intelligent, very visionary. But his style was very controlling and dictatorial. Consequently, all the people around him felt that they were treated like gophers, as if they had no judgment of their own. Go for this, go for that, do this, do this, gopher, 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 see? And they would just sit around basically in the executive corridors confessing the president's sin, swapping war stories. Let me tell you the latest. This is what he did today. Can you believe this? How are things going with you? Oh, really? He came into your department and gave a whole different signal and totally disrupted the whole thing. Well, let me just tell you the latest with me, etc., etc. Then the other responds, well, you think that's something. Wait till you hear this one. Then the war stories expand. Hey, why don't we get together some more at lunch and go further into this? It's fun because it becomes a kind of common cement that unites the people. At the time, it may seem to unite you, but it begins to stress the relationship in an unseen fundamental sense, and it will eventually break it because you're really doing the same thing, and the inner circle begins to wither. One man, however, whose name was Ben, was very proactive. His life was not a function of the president's weaknesses. Yes, he was aware of them. They were in his circle of concern, but not his circle of influence. Therefore, he smiled a lot about them. He didn't disempower himself. 
He used his strengths to compensate for the president's weaknesses in his own small circle of influence with his own people. And little by little, Ben's circle of influence began to get larger and larger. He exercised so much more initiative, so much more responsibility. Yet he himself was treated like a gopher, as were the rest. Go for this, go for that. But he was the best gopher around. He not only went for the data, he tried to anticipate the need. He'd think like this. I think the president wants this information for a board meeting. I'm going to get him the data. Then I'm going to give my analysis of the data and my recommendations based on the analysis. And I'm going to give it to the president in a presentation form. One day the president said to me, Stephen, I cannot believe what Ben is doing. It's just amazing. I asked him to get this information. He anticipated my need. He analyzed the information. He developed alternative recommendations. And it's in a form that I can present it to the board. You know, Stephen, I think I'm going to have him make the presentation. Now notice what's happened to Ben's circle of influence. He was getting larger and larger. In the next executive meeting, the president was into his gopher approach, go for this, go for this. But when it came to Ben, he said, Ben, what's your opinion? What do you think the reactive minds did in the executive quarters that day? You see, reactive people are always looking for evidence. I'll bet there's some kind of favoritism going on here, maybe even nepotism. The interesting thing, however, is this. Ben dealt with them in the same way he dealt with the president. And little by little, over a four-year period, I saw Ben become the number two person in the organization. His circle of influence with everybody became so large that even the president could not and would not make any significant moves without Ben's blessing. And Ben read the culture. He understood the culture. So the president's weakness and style was being compensated for by Ben's strength with his cultural awareness so that the president's judgments about how to implement the vision, how to actualize the vision, was strengthened. It was an amazing thing. Always work on the inner circle. That is the circle of influence. It's marvelous. I'm on this team now, and it's with people of different levels. And I'm finding that the more that I get to meet people and I'm able to influence things that are going on at a greater measure simply because I don't worry about things that I can't control now, but in the meetings I'm able to like speak out for the other workers and my circle of influence is growing. I'm meeting more people. Um, I have found the circle of influence to be most powerful for me in my relationships with my family because I would love to control the decisions that my brothers and sister make. Obviously, I can't do that. They have to make their own decisions. If I am not walking my talk in everything I do, I mean, pick your habit, pick your topic. If I am not faithful to it, then I have, I have no room with them. I have no influence whatsoever. This circle of influence idea is tremendous because you can use it to motivate yourself by it and to say, no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to be proactive and give my energies to the inner circle, to those things I can really do something about. And if you're patient and persistent, it will get larger. You know, someone came to me one time and said, maybe you can help me. I really like these things you're teaching, but it seems that my situation is so different. I'm really worried about our marriage. My wife and I, we just don't have the same feeling for each other we once had. You know, Stephen, the love just isn't there anymore. It's just dead. And I said, well, what are your plans? What is your thinking? He said, I don't know. 
That's the concern because we have these three kids who are very concerned. What do you think we should do? I said, love her. He responded, well, as I indicated, the feeling isn't there. The love just isn't there anymore. Now what suggestions you have? Love her. How do you love when you don't love? I responded, love is a verb. Love the feeling is the fruit of love the verb. Study all the great literature of all civilizations, religions, and societies that have endured and show me anywhere where in the fundamental sense love is a feeling. It's Hollywood that teaches that. See, love is a value to be actualized. It is a verb. That's the essence of being proactive. It's taking responsibility. It's choosing one's own response. Love the feeling is the fruit of love the verb. Love is something you do, the sacrifices you make, the giving of self. Look at the love a mother feels for the new baby that she has just carried and delivered into the world. She produced the love she feels. She sacrificed. I said to him, start thinking selflessly. Give of yourself. Sacrifice for her. Serve her. Love the feeling comes in the very process of serving and sacrificing. Show love. Love first. Don't wait to be loved first. Be proactive. Love is a verb. Initially, he didn't like that because it was so much easier for him to just absolve himself of responsibility in the name of, well, I don't feel it. So remember, love is a verb first and foremost. Then it is a feeling. Forgiving is a verb. Forgetting is a verb. Seriously, I've seen so many relationships rebuilt if only one of the parties would cultivate these proactive muscles. Admittedly, there's a price that has to be paid, and it takes patience. This doesn't happen overnight. So the first habit I suggest is that individuals, families, and organizations begin to get a sense of responsibility. And the attitude that we have the power to choose our response in any circumstance, and the courage to take initiative to act upon our conscience... That, I suggest, is the very essence of proactivity. Stephen now discusses Habit 2, Begin with the End in Mind. Habit 2 is based on the principle of personal leadership. Stephen explains how beginning with the end in mind requires a sense of vision and self-chosen values and applies to everything we do in our personal, family, and organizational lives. Now as we go into habit two, begin with the end in mind. Let me first try to put it in perspective with habit one. To use the computer metaphor again, habit one basically says you are the programmer. Habit two, begin with the end in mind, says write the program. You see, if you're the programmer, then write it. Don't just live some other program out that you don't feel meets your needs and your values. You decide it. You write it. Look at it this way for a moment. Habit one is the habit of personal vision. That is, you have a vision or a personal sense that you have this internal power to choose your response and that you can choose it on the basis of values. But notice that assumes values. That assumes a self-chosen value system. That's what habit two is. Habit two is the habit of personal leadership. It's based upon that vision, but it's the program that you write for yourself. You take leadership in your own life. 
in your family life, in your work life. Leadership deals with the direction of one's life. You decide your value system. Habit 2 is based on the principle of personal leadership, of purpose, of mental creation, and of mission. The opposite of habit 2 is to do no intellectual creation, to have no sense of mission, to do no envisioning of the future, to just kind of let life happen, to go with the flow with no particular focus, to begin with no particular objective in mind. So the second habit, to begin with the end in mind, is in a sense the test of our meaning. What is our life about? What is our identity? It is not to abandon ourselves and to live out the programs that others have given to us and then blame them for how poor those programs were. An interesting thing about life is that it is always created twice. Always. You see, the first creation is an intellectual creation. The first creation is of the mind and of the spirit. The second creation is a physical creation. The home or office or car that you're in right now was mentally created in every detail and the plan reduced to a blueprint before it was actually physically created. The carpenter's rule is measure twice, cut once. In other words, you've got to make sure the blueprint, the first creation, is really what you want and that you've thought through everything. Obviously, the key is to begin with the end in mind. I think you can see the applicability of this idea to any field of endeavor. I mean, how useful is it that you have the end in mind when you're doing, say, a jigsaw puzzle? How useful is it that everyone has the same end in mind? You begin each project with the end in mind. You begin each day with the end in mind. You exercise with the end in mind. You go into a meeting with the end in mind. Not necessarily that your decision is accepted, but that the group together produces the best decision and strengthens their relationship. In other words, this concept of begin with the end in mind applies to everything we do in our lives, from our professional life to our personal and family life. This is so basic with families and organizations. The fundamental reason, the root reason why families split up and organizations fail is that its members do not share a common vision what if everybody participated to create that vision and purpose and worked to create it over a period of time to where they really owned it? They felt it. This is our vision. We share it together. To begin with the end in mind is the most important decision and the most significant decision. Why? Because every other decision, large and small, will be influenced by that decision. What are the principles I want to operate my life on? What are the principles we want our family to operate on? What are the principles we want our organization to operate on? You see, you're deciding what are the things that are truly important. This is a very fundamental principle so that you have a continuing sense of guidance in your life. Then you don't end up climbing that proverbial ladder that is leaning against the wrong wall. Stephen next explains how we can create powerful mission statements in our personal, family, and organizational lives so that we can focus on a vision of the future which will be greater than any baggage we might have from our past.
I suggest that the highest essence of Habit 2, to begin with the end in mind, is the development of a personal mission statement, a personal purpose statement, whatever you want to call it, and also the development of a family mission statement. I seriously think that is the most important activity of Habit 2. Likewise, I would encourage organizations to develop a mission statement for the entire organization, for a department, for a team, for a board, for a committee. I think it should contain two basic parts, vision and principles. Vision deals with the mental picture of what you are about, and principles deal with how you go about it. In organizations, we ask, what is this organization about? What is its essential purpose or mission? Then we also ask, what does it value that represents its changeless core? See, those are the two parts, vision and principle-centered values. An organizational mission statement is vital for two reasons. First of all, if you don't know where the organization's going and how they're going to get there and where you fit into that picture, or if you do, then when you're struggling with who you are and where you're going and how you're going to get there, if they're not aligned and you're not working toward the same common goal, you're going to have problems. Another significant piece for me has been in writing the mission statement. In the career planning process, I was starting to identify themes in my life and important things for me. But then in the fall, when I wrote my first mission statement, um, I kind of captured all of that, but a whole bunch of other stuff too. And so I ended up with this page-long mission statement that wasn't very workable. And then a couple months later, I sat down and did a one-liner mission statement. And I found that didn't quite get it. And to now take another time out, and just that exercise of the five minutes of writing about what's really important to me, it all kind of gelled, and I was able to kind of get that happy medium, and I feel like I've got 80% now of my final mission statement. My dream is that I'll have a family that when they grow up, they will still want to come home. They'll want to come home more than they want to go anywhere else. By home, I mean back to the, the grandparent home, the home where Marilyn and myself are that they'll come home and just the cousins will like the cousins and they'll like their aunts and uncles and they'll just grow up that way and my overall dream is that after Marilyn and myself have died that they'll still want to come home they'll just want to see each other and it won't kinda of come apart when we leave that's the kind of family I want to have it's a long-range thing but that's my overriding goal this is profound, deep work. You have to really work to get perspective, though. It takes time. You have to be patient. We should give ourselves several months, at least weeks. We must pay a price as we cultivate this sense of vision, this purpose. Remember also that vision is different than principles. Vision is different than values. Vision requires an enormous amount of self-awareness and of imagination and of humility, of openness and also of the use of conscience. As Viktor Frankl put it, the thing I learned is that you don't invent your mission. You detect it. You uncover it, as it were. Everyone has special gifts and unique qualities and characteristics, 
and the need to work until, in a sense, they inwardly detect it. What are your unique gifts? Use self-knowledge. Take time. Listen within. And listen also to those who see the potential in you. Sense their affirmation of you. Study the lives of people who have inspired you. What is it you so admired about them? So that little by little you can get a sense of what principles you yourself want to build upon. Then think about what contributions are important to you and what growth and development is essential to make those contributions. I remember watching on television General Schwarzkopf at the end of the Gulf War was asked by a television interviewer what he would like to have his epitaph say. He responded, a good soldier who served his country and loved his family. I just think about those few words. They really comprise many, many guiding principles, guiding criteria for his life. I don't know if that was a spontaneous response or whether he had thought about that before, but it's an interesting statement. A good soldier who served his country and loved his family. The principle of service, of love, of goodness, of integrity, the different roles in his life, his country, his family. See, really, even though it's very short, it contains so much. Now, let me give us some basic characteristics of a good mission statement, whether they be personal, family, or organizational mission statements. One, they should be timeless. You see, goals are not timeless, so they should not include goals. Goals will change. Strategies will change. Goals and strategies will reflect the realities of the present situation. Mission statements should reflect the realities of the situation, but also should be changeless. We also ask, what are the principles upon which we operate regardless of what the situation is about? That's what gives permanence. That's what gives us a changeless core. And that's what enables people to live with change because they have something inside that never changes. You can deal with the changes inside people, inside an organization, and inside the environment. So I would say first write it as if it will never be changed. Now I have also learned that as you mature and as your consciousness expands and deepens, you will find that you will gradually also strengthen and deepen and improve your mission statement. But always write it at any stage as if it will never change as if it were timeless, it causes you to think differently than the way you think about goals and plans and strategies. Let me share with you a second criterion of a good mission statement. It should deal with both ends and means. Ends have to do with what it is we are about. Means have to do with how we go about it. In other words, what are the principles we operate to achieve those ends, that vision? You see, ends and means are really inseparable because you can never achieve a worthy end with an unworthy means. Ends pre-exist in the means. Many mission statements are only wish statements or dream statements because they don't deal with means at all. Others deal only with means, their value statements, and they don't deal with ends. The key to one is always the other the ends and the means being inseparable. Consider now a third criterion of developing good mission statements. It should deal with all four of our needs. Let me mention what these four needs are. 
to live, to learn, to love, and to leave a legacy. The need to live has to do with our body and the welfare of our family, the economics we might call it, the need to live. And then we have the need to love and to be loved, to belong, to be accepted, to be part of something, to have people care about you and that you care about them. This taps into this whole culture area, the social need, the relationship need. The third need is the need to keep growing, the need to learn, to develop, to have your talents be identified, to be used, to be recognized when they're used. And the fourth need is the spiritual need for meaning, to leave a legacy, that your life matters, that you make a difference, that you add value. The need for meaning is an enormous need in all people. For those that don't believe this, just try sometime throwing their work out the window and see how they feel about it. Sometimes you see people lose a loved one, let's say in a tragic accident or a terrible disease. Then watch if they don't try to make that life meaningful by going into some cause to understand the disease, to research the disease, or to engage in the fight against drunk driving or whatever. In other words, they need some cause, some meaning that can be attached to that person's life. Think about it and you'll realize that there is enormous need in all of us to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. Finally, the fourth criterion of a good mission statement is that it should either implicitly or explicitly deal with all of the roles of your life. You don't want to neglect any one of your roles. In my personal life, I have the role of being a husband, a father. I have the role of being a manager. I have the role of being a teacher, of being a writer. I have the role of being a community worker, a neighbor, a church worker. And all of these roles are important to me. We need to lead a balanced life. And to lead a balanced life, we need to think through all those roles and in some way include them in our mission statements. I suggest these four elements are the fundamental criteria of good mission statements, not only for individuals, but also for families and organizations. I cannot, by the way, say enough about the significance and power of a family mission statement in becoming an extremely integrative, cohesive, motivating, and uplifting activity and source of direction. I know in our own family life it has had a profound experience. We did it many, many years ago, and we developed our family mission statement over the course of about eight months. Everyone participated. Even my own mother was involved, and today we have grandchildren, and they have become part of it. So that represents four generations involved in this mission statement. I don't have the words to describe the incalculable benefits that have come from this process and this involvement. In fact, the process was as important as the content of the mission statement itself. Our family mission statement reads like this, and remember, it's only an example. It is not the example. It's just one other family's mission statement. The mission of our family is to create a nurturing place of faith, order, truth, love, happiness, and relaxation and to provide opportunity for each person to become responsibly independent and effectively interdependent in order to serve worthy purposes in society. Now, in the intervening years, we have used that as a kind of family constitution so that we constantly go back to it 
and reaffirm into our own frame of mind and heart the basic principles it contains. We have it in our family room and we examine ourselves against it and many times we identify our weaknesses, even our hypocrisies, but we always go back to it and try to live by it. The effort to develop and to live by a mission statement leads to a sense of empowerment in family members and empowerment and greater trust in the work culture as well. You don't have to get on people's backs. You don't have to hover over and check up and follow through. All of those other carrot and stick kinds of motivational techniques are obsoleted by having this internal sense of what we are about, this fire within that comes from a well-developed mission statement. But let me share with you three no-nos about developing mission statements. I've learned from observation, from sad experience. First, don't rush them. Don't be into efficiency. Second, don't announce them or try to install them. Always invite deep involvement and deep participation from everyone in the family or the organization. Third, don't ignore them. In other words, act upon them. You put your mission statement where it can be examined and explored and where you can go and study it against your behavior to see how well you're living up to it and what you need to do to improve. To sum up, I would make certain that my own personal mission statement is intact first. Then I would work on developing a family mission statement. If my family is just my spouse, I would work on developing it with my spouse so that we had our own mature way of how to deal with problems and how to nurture our own immune system so that we could handle any problems that may come along. So I commend to you the process of long-term thinking, long-term planning, long-term envisioning, so that you gradually build very powerful, personal, and family and organizational mission statements that surround the accomplishment of worthy purposes. To me, that is the essence of true leadership. Highly effective individuals, families, and organizations do not really manage time. They manage self. Instead of reacting to the urgent and being caught up in the thick of thin things, effective people plan and execute according to their deepest priorities. As Stephen explains in Habit 3, they put first things first and implement this habit, which is based on the principle of personal management. Now let's quickly review. Habit 1, be proactive, is the awareness that you are the programmer. Habit 2, begin with the end in mind, is where you write the program. Habit 3 is where you run it. In other words, you execute around it. The third habit is to put first things first. The opposite of habit 3, to put first things first, is to put second or third things first. Or to put first things second. In a sense, you become bogged down in what is called the thick of thin things. Goethe said it this way, Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. 
Now, habit three, put first things first, is the test of our integrity. Can we walk by those first things? You see, in a very real sense, the second habit, begin with the end in mind, decides what the first things are. And the third habit, put first things first, is that habit of our discipline and our commitment to live by those first things. Thus, it is the habit of integrity, the habit of keeping our lives integrated. In other words, we walk our talk. That's the real challenge and the true test of our integrity and our maturity. Habit three would be the management principle of putting first things first, where habit two is the leadership principle in deciding what the first things are. In other words, in habit three, you organize and execute around the priorities you decided on in habit two. Now, essentially, habit three, to put first things first, is the paradigm or way of thinking which focuses upon relationships rather than schedules. Why? Because people in relationships are the first things. And almost all people will come to that. The traditional paradigm or way of thinking in the field of time management has always dealt with time, with scheduling, with control, with efficiency. That is, doing more things faster. You see, that paradigm is focused on efficiency and control. It is called time management. You manage your time. The clock is its symbol. It drives us toward efficiency. Have you ever tried to be efficient with a loved one on a tough issue? How did it go? You ever do it with your spouse? How did it go? You ever do it with a difficult teenage situation? How did that one go? You see, right off the bat, you already know how foolish it is. But look at the paradigm that drives it. When it doesn't work, what do we do? We try to do it better. We try to do it more efficiently, more quickly. I had a boy one time that was into this kind of efficiency approach. He finally decided that the girl he was going with, the relationship wouldn't work out. So he put it down on his list of something to do for that day. Drop Margaret. In other words, study for this final exam, drop off this paper, then drop Margaret then take this test in sociology. I mean, she was one of the many items. Now, because there'd been a deep feeling for each other for a period of time, he had scheduled 15 or 20 minutes for the visit. And he wanted to do it over the phone so that if she cried, she wouldn't be so embarrassed and also that he could handle it rather dispassionately and efficiently. So he calls her up. Hi, Margaret. How you doing? How's your test going? Oh, yeah, I... That was really a bear, and I just, I don't know what to do about that. And what what about your situation? You got two more tests, huh? You prepared for them? Oh, yeah. And then he looks at his watch, and he notices he used about five minutes in all this nice social talk. And then inwardly he said to himself, now I've got to get to the hard part. So he says, uh, excuse me, Margaret, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, you know, our, our relationship with each other and everything, and... Uh, I, I just don't know uh, if it's the way we should go. I've given a lot of thought to our relationship, and I'm sure you have as well, and I just feel like maybe it's just best that we just be friends. You know, you know what I mean, Margaret? Margaret, are you there? Now don't, don't be offended, Margaret. I, I, I really do care for you. I just feel like that maybe a friendship would be the best way to go in the long run. She was very upset, very emotional, and he just simply had to go over to her house. But really, talk about the disruption of his schedule. You see, we try to be nice, we try to be positive, but the underlying paradigm, which is not questioned, it's just an assumption, is one of control and efficiency. 
that we're right and the other is wrong, and gradually you turn people into a thing. Remember again, with people, fast is slow, and slow is fast, yet as effective. We want effectiveness with people, and we want efficiency with things. People are not things. Now, the paradigm I'm trying to teach is symbolized by a compass, not a clock, and it is based upon a sense of focusing upon the first things in our lives, and they're always relationships. This is also true in business, relationships with customers, associates, and so forth. And the essence of all effectiveness basically deals with people and with relationships, and ultimately these are governed by a moral sense of principles that is, of what is right and what is wrong, and of integrity around those principles. This requires all of us to be sufficiently open and humble to just get into this kind of pair of glasses, this new frame of reference, this new paradigm, this new map that is based upon relationships, not schedules, based upon principles, not values, based upon leadership first, then management, based upon a compass, and then a clock. A good practical way of doing this is to write down on a piece of paper what to you are the most important things, the first things in your life, the supremely important things. Now, we're speaking of things in a generic sense, such as people, relationships, family, health, integrity, service, and so forth. What are your first things? Just list five or six this takes real deep thinking because you have to prioritize. In fact, you may wish to even pause this program momentarily while you do this little exercise. family, my health, education, and a good financial basis to operate from. The most important things to me are my family, and not just my immediate family, but my um, sister and my mom that doesn't live with me, my church, my children, my husband. First things for me are my family. I'm the youngest of nine, and no matter where I'm at in the world, just to be able to know that they're there. Family. God, um, career, people, you know, those are primary. Those always take about the top. The first things in my life are personal and spiritual development, relationships, and work. Okay, now continue this prioritization. And this is the toughest part of the thinking process. What do you think is number one, then number two, then three, four, five, and so forth? One effective way is to just cut out one. What would it be? Then cut out another one until you get down to that which is most important.
Another way to get at this is to answer two questions. Think of one activity that you absolutely know that if you did it superbly well and consistently would produce marvelous results in your personal or family life. think of one activity in your work or professional life that you know that if you did it superbly well and consistently would produce marvelous results. In other words, think of activities in your personal and your work life that help us to secure the first things you've already identified. Now that you've written down what the first things are and you've written down what is the one activity in your personal and in your work life that you absolutely know that if you did it superbly well, you would produce marvelous results, study that. Most of you put down in your first things your family, your loved ones. I know you did. I've done this all over the world, and that's what most people put down. You'll also find that you also wrote down about the same activities that would produce marvelous results. You'd focus on preparation, on prevention, on value clarification, on planning, on relationship building, on deep communication with the key people in your lives. You may have used different words, but the underlying meanings are almost always the same, everywhere. The point that we're trying to get across here is that we shift to this new paradigm, which is a way of thinking based upon principles and relationships rather than things and schedules. In other words, based on leadership first, then management. Based on relationships first, then schedules. Based upon a compass, then a clock. Basically, we spend our time in one of four ways based on importance and urgency. Stephen next teaches how we can obtain the results we desire and lead more balanced lives by focusing on activities that matter and learning to say no to the rest. Now, if you take out the little listener's guide that came with the program, you'll see a chart in there showing four quadrants I call the time management matrix. The key words to understand are importance and urgency. Importance basically comes from within you. Importance is your value system, hopefully based on principles. Importance is your mission, your central strategy to accomplish those high-priority goals and the plans to implement that strategy. Urgency comes from the environment. It presses upon you. 
It's proximate, it's right in front of you. And it's often very popular. It could be deep into a social value system. It's urgent. It has the appearance of requiring immediate attention. Now you have to decide what is truly important in your life. That's why I asked you. Now notice the question. What are the most important things to you, your first things? And then I asked, what are the single activities that you know without any question that by doing those consistently, superbly well, you'd accomplish marvelous results? See, you've identified what's important. Now, quadrant one, you'll notice, is both urgent and important. These are usually called problems or crises, putting out fires. Sometimes these quadrant one activities are deadline-driven. So it's either a present problem or a problem in the making if you neglect it. Quadrant two is not urgent, but it is important. Prevention is not urgent, but is that important? Very important? Critically important? Absolutely. So quadrant two would include prevention, as well as preparation, planning, relationship building, empowerment, self-development, developing mission statements, and the like. You see, quadrant two is the leadership quadrant. Now, quadrant three is not important, but it is urgent. It includes many proximate pressing matters and many popular activities, interruptions, other people's expectations. So all these quadrant three activities are not important, but they have the appearance of urgency. Finally, quadrant four is neither urgent or important. This usually includes irrelevant phone calls and mail, busy work, time wasters such as excessive TV, and so, again, quadrant four is neither urgent nor important. All right now, looking at your paper and looking at your answers to those two questions, what quadrant were those answers in? What would you say? It had to be either one or two, but why is almost every answer in two? Because you're not doing them. And why? Because they're not urgent. The whole popular culture has so defined urgency as important that we end up neglecting that which is important but not urgent. Relationship building, deep communication with the key people at home and at work, planning, preparation, getting a clear sense of mission or priorities, etc. In fact, you examine most executive agendas, most agendas of any meeting against the four quadrants and you'll find almost all of them are quadrants one and three. Quadrant two is usually called other business. And what happens to it? It gets pushed aside by quadrants one and three. So where do you get time for quadrant two when you're inundated by quadrant one things that are both important and urgent? You neglect quadrants three and four. You literally, smilingly neglect them. Those things which are not important, you literally say no. Because things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. You'll have the power to do this, this quadrant two work, when there is a burning yes inside you about your mission and purpose and value system. You can literally say no to all kinds of unimportant, however urgent other things may be. A phone call comes up, could you come to this business meeting? I would like to. However, I have a prior commitment. Even if that commitment is to yourself for planning or preparing or preventing. When people sense your quadrant two orientation, 
They'll begin to see you differently. They just won't come and throw urgent but unimportant things at you. Quadrant three things, like they used to. This happened to me one time with a manager who reported to me. I gave him some very urgent things that really were not that important. And he said, sure, I'll work if you want. And he pulled down his project board. I saw all of his projects, deadline dates, progress he'd made and so forth. And I realized I'm dealing with someone who has purpose and organization here. I'm not going to mess up this person's life and get involved in reordering his system. I'd have to carry that responsibility. So I just simply said, don't worry about it. I'll find someone else. And I was thinking in terms of some crisis manager. Now, what if it's your boss that gives you a Quadrant 3 project? By definition, remember this. What is important to another person must be as important to you as the other person is to you. If your boss is important to you, then what is important to your boss must also be important to you. By definition, that makes it a Quadrant 1 issue. The key is to focus on what truly is important and to say no to the rest, no matter how urgent. Now, when you do that, it is tremendous because you have quadrant two under your belt. You have a clear sense of purpose. You're saying yes so strongly to things that matter most. It's easy to say no to the other things. But people who are flaky and disorganized and undisciplined and haven't paid the price in coming up with a mission statement and with a clear sense of their own goals and priorities, they're going to be distracted by almost anything that comes their way. Next, Stephen describes the six-step process and how it can help you determine your deepest priorities and keep them as the first things in your life. Now let me suggest a practical way to implement what we've been talking about in this area of putting first things first in our lives. And by the way, I recommend that you get some sort of scheduling tool if you don't already have one. The seven habits organizer is ideal because the six step process I'm going to take you through is built right into the structure of the organizer itself. Now let me go through the six step process with you, assuming you're using some kind of an organizing tool. Step number one, connect to your mission. In other words, connect to your overall philosophy, your sense of what your life is about, your vision for your life and how you see yourself, the kind of contribution, the kind of character and the value system, which is hopefully centered upon principles. You connect to that first. That's where you have the burning yes about what your life is about that gives you the courage to say no to other things. Second, study the roles that you have in your life. Most of these will have to do with relationships. Roles having to do with your family or community or the key roles that you have in your work. You may be a department head. You may be a manager. You may be a technician in a particular department. Or you may be a member of an executive committee. You may be the CEO or whatever. That's the second activity. Identify roles. Third, now select goals around each of those roles you identified. Fourth, now organize weekly. The smallest unit of planning would be a week, not a day. Otherwise, you're just going to prioritize crises. And this weekly planning would be done in the context of a larger-term plan that would involve perhaps a month or a half a year or a full year. 
It's like taking a helicopter view. It's not where you're on the ground in a truck, slow-moving truck going around each hour of every day, nor are you in a large jet 30,000 feet off the ground. Most people think in terms of weeks. It's small enough to have a sense of perspective about what the big things are, and it's big enough so that you have perspective about the most important things, and yet it's small enough that you can think through how each day contributes to the overall week. Fifth, then exercise integrity in the moment of choice. That means you adapt on a daily basis, even on an hourly basis, even on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, on the basis of your principles, your integrity. You see, you have educated your conscience with principles, and you have this inward sense of what's right. You also have the inward sense of your vision. So no matter what comes up on a daily or hourly basis, you follow this conscience and you adapt instantly. That means your scheduling is very soft. You're hard on principles, but soft on scheduling. And the central principle surrounds people and relationships. So you are kind and respectful, and they will also reciprocate with respect. Sixth, you evaluate. You stand back and reflect, how's it going? Where do I need to adjust, to adapt more? What's happening here? Once again, let's go through these six steps. First, connect to your mission. Second, review your roles. Third, select a goal or goals for each role. Fourth, organize on a weekly basis. Fifth, use integrity in the moment of choice. And sixth, evaluate. Now remember, you organize this whole week within the context of a longer-term plan and within the context of your overall mission. Now when you have yourself so organized, you can relax because you know that you're going to have your private date with your daughter this week and when you're going to have it. You know when you're going to exercise. You know when you're going to have an opportunity to spend time with your spouse or other key people in your life to cultivate and nurture those relationships. Why? Because you have scheduled it. Then you take all of your other roles in work and community and so forth, and you've organized time for each one of them. In other words, you think through very carefully about each role and the goals you want to accomplish. Let's say that you have a daughter who's struggling in school, so you want to spend a little time with her, and you schedule that. You have your son's game coming up, so you want to make sure you schedule that and not neglect it. But then also you have very important goals under each of your work roles, and you schedule them. Just notice the kind of control that you're getting and how everything is balanced. Now, admittedly, things are going to come up you can't anticipate. That's where you have to adapt based upon your conscience, your integrity in the moment of choice. It's good to know that you've scheduled time for all the important first things of your life. Then you don't have to worry about it. You can relax and smile and say no to everything else. Unless changes come about, and they always do, so you consult your conscience and principles, and you say, wait a minute, I hadn't anticipated this, something else has come up, it's really important, so you adapt and make the necessary changes. The point is that you operate on an overall vision and a sense of mission and principles, so you can relax and smile. All I can say is you'll never know the power of this until you really do it.
Stephen now discusses Habit 4, Think Win-Win. Habit 4 is based on the principle of mutual benefit and respect. Stephen explains how the attitude of win-win is a vital factor in leadership and in all of our relationships. Habit 4, Think Win-Win, lies at the very heart of all relationships. Think Win-Win is the habit of mutual benefit. It is the habit of the golden rule. It is the habit of abundance. The underlying principle is abundance. In other words, there's plenty out there and to spare. So you don't have to be threatened by the strengths of other people. You can nurture competency around you higher than your own. It doesn't threaten you. You can share knowledge. You can share recognition. You can share gain and profit. Why? Because of abundance. But if people derive their sense of worth from being compared to the external, or from the social value system out there, or how well they stack up with others, they're always in a state of anxiety. They're always studying the pecking order. They're concerned about how they're dressed and how they look. They're into posturing and they're threatened by competency around them. They feel that if they share knowledge, they lose unique advantage. It gives others the same awareness that they have. They lose some of their power. And if they share power or gain, they feel like they have less. You know, it's like a piece of pie. There's only so much. If you get the recognition, I may not get it. I will have less. It is the paradigm of scarcity, not the paradigm of abundance. Most people have never had profound experiences with win-win people. They don't really believe there's such a thing as win-win. It's either you win or you lose. You're either tough or you're soft. You're strong or you're weak. They think in dichotomies, either or, and they'll become martyrs. They'll go for lose-win and call it win-win, particularly among so-called important people. And then they'll often take out their energy on the ones that they can control so that they're lose-win above them and win-lose below them. Then what happens at the side all depends on the moods and the ego of the people involved. Who's winning in your marriage? And what happens when your kids take you on? Do you take them on back? What about your employees? Who's winning there? Oftentimes, win-lose can become so vindictive, so acrimonious, that people literally are drenched in ego. And they don't even care if they lose as long as the other person loses. In fact, I remember a situation where a divorcee was just into such a win-lose spirit that he was told by the judge that he was to take half of his assets and sell them, and give the other half to his ex-wife. So he took an $8,000 car, sold it for $50, so he could give her twenty-five. You see, the win for him was twist that thing, see, make them pay. Some people almost temporarily buy so deeply into win-lose. And if both do, and they're drenched in ego, lose-lose inevitably results. In fact, in my opinion, in the long run, any win-lose approach or lose-win approach on essential jugular issues in the long run eventually will be useless and end up in lose-lose. Remember, principles ultimately will govern so that if there's a spirit of acrimoniousness, a spirit of vindictiveness, a spirit of getting back, of getting even, it becomes a very deep violation with the universal principle of equity, of fairness, and of the golden rule. Can you begin to see that the roots of the win-win mindset 
comes deep out of the private victory of habits one, two, and three? You see, if the private victory is real and sincere, you're at peace. You're centered. You're anchored. You're rooted. You're established. Your ego's not involved. Down deep, you're invulnerable. So you can afford to be vulnerable on the surface of your life and go for win-win. So habit four, to think win-win, comes from the principle of abundance, not scarcity, meaning that the pie gets larger and larger and larger. In what way? Because through the interaction on a win-win basis, a transformation begins to take place in our natures to where we tap into more creativity, more resourcefulness, more ingenuity, more wisdom, more intelligence, deeper and deeper into the bowels of the organization. We see the problem differently. We define it differently. We come up with new alternatives that do tap into abundance instead of the one we'd been considering that only was based upon scarcity. So that deeper in our marriage, deeper in our family life and in our organizations, this kind of win-win spirit can eventually bring about synergy so that ultimately the whole is truly greater than the sum of the parts. We'll talk about this under Habit 6 later. Such an abundance mentality increases knowledge, increases power, and the earlier fears become unfounded. And if you maintain the attitude of thinking win-win and the skill and method of Habit 5 to seek first to understand, then to be understood, you will create such interaction, such mutual understanding that it leads to the fruit of Habit 6 called Synergy. New insights, new alternatives, new learnings, new heights. But it all has to start with the person. They have to begin to say, I'm going to go for win-win with people. One man said to me one time, Stephen, come on. I mean, the world just isn't like that. It sounds good, but really it's a little idealistic. It's not like that out there in the real world. The world is not into cooperation. The world is into competition. So win-win is just too much an ivory tower of theory and abstraction and idealism. So I said to him, I need to listen to you a little more. He said, all right, I'll tell you. We were renegotiating our lease arrangements with the mall operators and owners, and you counseled us as our consultant to go for win-win. We did. We were open. We were conciliatory, had a win-win spirit. They saw that as weakness, as softness. And then they took us to the cleaners. I said, well, why did you go for lose-win? He said, we didn't. We went for win-win. I said, didn't you just say they took you to the cleaners? Yeah. In other words, you lost and they won. That's right. Well, what's that called? I mean, really, it was like the lights had come on. He realized that what he called win-win was really lose-win. You see, lose-win is not win-win at all. People who think in dichotomies believe that lose-win, being nice, being soft, is win-win because they haven't really experienced the creation of a new option, a new alternative that is far better than win-lose or lose-win, called win-win. In other words, my friends, win-win is so much tougher. It's much tougher than win-lose. Why? In the early stages, you have to be tough on yourself. You have to cultivate the empathy, the sensitivity, the openness, the consideration, and at the same time, to not capitulate, to not give in, to not give up. Win-win basically means we consent together. Now, sometimes it's not practical. I know that. So you merely agree to disagree agreeably. We call this no deal. 
So you go for win-win or you go for no deal. It's not going to work out. I'm not going to sell to you. I'm not going to hire you. I'm not going to buy from you or whatever. So no deal is certainly one of the options. Maybe at a later time you can come together in a win-win way on another issue. So if you're deeply committed to win-win or no deal, you can be absolutely open and honest. You have no hidden negotiation techniques. You just basically say, I want us both to win. That's not a whim as I see it, but I need to understand why it is a win for you. Let me understand. Then back and forth, you try to understand each other. And as you do that, genuinely, sincerely, something very dynamic happens. You move from a transactional to a transformational relationship. And the spirit of empathic understanding has a magical effect upon the human spirit and upon the quality of the relationship. This completes the second CD. Please insert the third CD to continue with the program. Stephen's story entitled Green and Clean has amused and deeply influenced people the world over. Because of its specific applications to the concept of setting up win-win or stewardship agreements, that story, as delivered before a live audience, is included here as Stephen continues his discussion of win-win. You know my green and clean story. My little son agreed in a family meeting to take care of the art. Son, your job is green and clean. It has nothing to do with watering. That's a method. Let me show you what green looks like, son. Let's go over to our neighbor's house. <laughs> That's the color we're after, son. <laughs> Compare that with our yard, which I've been taking care of. Clean means... Let's clean up half of it. Now notice that compared to that. That's green and clean, son. Two weeks to train this little kid in green and clean. Now, son, how you do that is up to you. I'd tell her how I do it if you want. How would you do it, Dad? I'd turn on the sprinklers. <laughs> but you may want to use buckets or hose or spit all day long. <laughs> all we care about is what, son? Green and clean. What's green look like? Good. What's clean? Good. It's your job, son. Guess who your boss is, son? Who? You boss yourself. Guess who your helper is? Who? I am. You boss me. I do? Many times I'm away. Many times I'm very busy with other things. But if I ever have any time, you need help. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And guess who judges you, son? That's right. You judge yourself. How do you think you judge yourself, son? Green and clean. What's green now? What's clean now? Good. Is that a deal, son? You think about it for a day or two. Saturday. How do you feel, son? I'll do it. Do what? Green and clean. How? That's up to me. Who's your boss? I boss myself. Who judges you? I judge myself. How do you judge yourself? Green and clean. What's green? Good. Clean? Good. Who's your helper? You are if you have time. What if I don't have time? I got to do green and clean. Is that a deal, son? Deal was made. You did nothing. Two weeks of training. <laughs> Nothing all that Saturday. 
all that Sunday. Monday, it's Tuesday morning, going to work. Hot, summer day, burning up, yellowing. Neighbor's yard, green and clean, manicured. Garbage strewn right down the side lawn from a Saturday night barbecue. Falling out the bottom of the sack, three feet from my car. <laughs> I could rationalize a little away Saturday and Sunday. But Monday, this is inexcusable. I was ready to move to win-lose. <laughs> now, son, you get out there, you get over here, or I'm telling... But the moment you do, you kill the goose. You kill effectiveness. You go for efficiency. Yeah, he'll clean that up. And what happens tomorrow when you're not there? <sighs> Bite your tongue. Reaffirm your purpose. Raise boys, not grass. <laughs> oh, let's see what it looks like tonight. Could hardly wait to get home. Driving, going around the corner, there where my yard was. Tuesday afternoon, more cluttered, more yellow than ever. My son across the street, playing ball in the park. I was burning. We'd agree that we'd walk around the yard twice a week, and he'd show me how it's going. Hi, son. How you doing? I was faking it totally. <laughs> Just fine, Dad. How's it going in the yard, son? Just fine, Dad. That was his accountability. Why? I violated our agreement. I knew that. That's not what we agreed to do. I bit my tongue. After dinner, why don't we walk around? You can show me how it's going. Before we got to the door, you could see his lip. <laughs> By the time we got out to the front yard, just open bawling. My, it's so hard. I mean, what was hard? He hadn't done one single thing. I'll tell you what hard is, is moving up the level of initiative. If you nag people enough, work is the course of least resistance. <laughs> you cannot hold people responsible for results if you supervise their methods. Anything you want me to do to help, son? Would you? What was our agreement? You said you'd help if you have time. I've got time. Just a minute, Dad ran in the house, came out with two sacks. He handed me one, he took one. It makes me vomit. <laughs> you pick that up, you know. Just took that wet garbage, stuffed it in the sack, you know. That's when he signed the win-win performance agreement. And he only asked for help a couple more times that entire summer. It was his job. It takes time to set up the agreement and to reaffirm it. The tendency is to backslide on it when you see mistakes. Keep believing in the people, holding them accountable in the way agreed. A win-win or stewardship agreement is an effective tool to clarify and manage expectations. It also creates a standard against which we can measure our own success. Stephen next outlines five essential elements of a win-win or stewardship agreement.
I'll never forget that entire summer how pleased I was to see a greener, cleaner yard than it was ever under my stewardship. I mean, he really owned the place. Ownership, it's mine. His pride was tied to it. And the effect of that kind of experience and growth and responsibility has been magnified and manifested a thousandfold over the years. But notice the basic five elements that made up the stewardship agreement. This is all part of training, of communicating, of having a vision about what the work is and establishing the stewardship. Now listen to these five elements. The first is a clear description of desired results. If possible, a visual picture of those desired results. This takes time. You've got to spend time. It took me two weeks. Green and clean. So you can see those. But most of us are in such a rush, we just try to set up some deal real fast and then nothing really happens. You've got to spend time. You've got to be patient. You've got to get visual and deep understanding. Oftentimes you can get them to make out their own quality statements of what the results will look like. Have them see it, to spend time with it. Don't push it. Don't rush it. Don't delegate when you're angry. In fact, don't even try to teach when you're angry. You've got to get a good relationship, a good emotional bank account, then set up the deal when there's such a good emotional sense of well-being and a good quality relationship. Second, teach people the guidelines, including the no-nos. A no-no is something you shouldn't do. I didn't do this in the story with my son, but I could have. I could have said, son, don't paint it. That's a no-no. It's not allowed. But you see, it would give the color green. In other words, any time you have given someone a job and you know the failure paths, identify them. If you'll know that they'll get in trouble if they do this or that, tell them. Be open and honest about it. Don't hide it. It's a failure path. There's quicksand there. There's wild animals there. In other words, you don't have to have everyone reinvent the wheel every day to learn the hard way. The best way to learn is to learn from other people's mistakes, from their failure paths. But then on the other hand, you don't want to tell them what to do. You'll give them guidelines, legal, ethical, moral requirements, but don't tell them what methods to do. In the early stages, you might do a little, but gradually you want to move away from this so that they begin to take more and more responsibility toward results. So in other words, you tell them what not to do, but not what to do. You only give them guidelines, including the no-nos. It leaves every other option available and open to them and taps into their resourcefulness their ingenuity, their creative energy, to do whatever it takes within those guidelines to accomplish the desired results. Third, now identify the resources. In the story I just gave, I said, call on me, son. But in many situations, you may have other human resources or financial resources, budgetary resources, and so forth that you can call upon. Fourth, now identify how accountability is to be done. Set up an accountability agreement focused around the desired results. In other words, we agreed to walk around the yard twice a week and he would judge himself. Now the ball's at his toe. He's responsible. He needs to take the initiative. When you do this, people will be accountable against the criteria built into the upfront agreement of desired results. Finally, identify the consequences of what's going to happen, good or bad, based upon that accountability of how well the desired results were achieved. Now with my son, the only consequence was intrinsic, that is, in the quality of the thing done or the activity itself. 
but I wouldn't have hesitated to attach an allowance to it, which would be an extrinsic or social consequence. At that time in his life, he didn't seem to need an allowance. He wasn't concerned about it. But perhaps at another time, I wouldn't have hesitated to say, you judge yourself, but if the job is worth $2 a week and you do a superb job, then give yourself $3. Or not as well, maybe only a dollar. You judge yourself. Really, my experience has been, if the relationship is good, people will be twice as tough on themselves as you would ever dare be. Why? You trusted them. They don't want to violate that trust. So to summarize, the essence of habit four, think win-win, it basically means that you try to cultivate in your own nature and character an abundant spirit. And then in the relationship with another person, you're always pursuing mutual benefit so that both parties win. And then you try to create an environment surrounding that which nurtures the keeping of that relationship on a win-win basis. Win-win is a paradigm. It is a way of thinking about all relationships. Sometimes you may need to go for no deal, but realize in the long run, anything but win-win will ultimately result in lose-lose. Stephen next describes Habit 5. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Learning how to communicate effectively and empathically is one of the master skills in family and organizational life and is the key to building win-win relationships. Now let's move on to Habit 5. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. You see, the whole key in Habit 5 is the sequence between these two expressions. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Most people literally do the very opposite. In fact, notice your own tendencies. Do you want to be understood before you seek to understand? The tendency of most all people is to listen with the intent to reply, not with the intent to understand. That's the most common tendency in us all. In most conversations, most interactions, the only desire is to be understood. Why? That's part of the need to be loved. We talked about to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. Love truly makes the world go round. To feel understood is to feel loved. And people have a need to be loved. However, the whole key to human influence is first to be influenced. Now, what does that mean? The key to having influence another person is that they feel that they have had influence with you. That is, that you were open to them, to what they were saying and feeling, and that you were consequently influenced by them. In other words, you understood them. The key to human influence with our spouses, with our children, with our work associates, in fact, with anyone, is always first to understand. That's the first point I'm trying to make here under Habit 5. This is so important because our tendencies run in an absolute opposite direction. Because everyone lives in their own world. It's a subjective world. It's a world that has its own meanings in it. Everyone has their own perceptions of what reality is. And people are walking around in these subjective worlds and then they collide with each other. And when they have to interact with each other, they usually interact efficiently within their own world. 
But if they're trying to bring the worlds together to create a better world or to come up with a new agreement or a new arrangement of necessity, both worlds come together. And unless we seek to understand the other person's world, we will not have influence with that other person, nor they with us. Let me use a couple of physical illustrations to illustrate. Could you possibly prescribe glasses for eyes you haven't diagnosed? No, if you're wearing glasses, it's because the optometrist first sought to understand and then build the prescription on that understanding. Another illustration. If you were to take the air out of the room you're in or the car you're in right now, what would happen to your interest in listening to this audio teaching program? All of a sudden, you have this great sucking sound and there's no air. What would you do? It wouldn't make any difference how interesting or how fascinating this program happened to be to you. You would want air. You'd do whatever you could do to get air. But now you get it. Now that you have air, does air motivate you? No. Your interest shifts to learning. Why? A satisfied need no longer motivates. You know what the equivalent is emotionally to air? It's to feel understood. They are then open to understand you. They're open to be influenced. But until they feel understood, nothing else you do will work with them. Because inside they'll always say, he or she does not understand. When you understand another, you've accepted them. That doesn't mean you agree with them, but that you accept they are people of worth, people worth listening to. You value them, or you wouldn't have spent such time understanding them. You also accept that they see their world differently. You accept that they live in their own world and that it has legitimacy. They occupy space. They are part of the human race. See, essentially, that's air. The most basic elemental foundation of it is that you matter to me. I accept you. Why? I understand you. Why would I want to understand you if you didn't matter, if you didn't have legitimacy? You see, to love another person is to affirm them emotionally, physically, to shake their hand, to empathize with them in some way. They need to be fed this air, this human touch, this warmth, this deep communication. And it can come in many, many ways. The problem is that most of us tend to get into a very efficient state of mind. We have our own schedule. We know the kinds of things we want to accomplish. We think it through in our mind. We're under a lot of pressure. There are all kinds of things on our platter and it's tough. And that's the way modern life is. It's a rushing, fast-moving world. It's changing. It's chaotic. It's turbulent. Well, what do we do to handle that? You have to kind of figure it out. You have to try to be efficient and schedule yourself and then carry out your schedule. But see, the problem is that when you get into an efficient state of mind, you also try to be efficient in your listening as well. And you don't really take time to listen to understand, to listen empathically, meaning to listen within the other's frame of reference. Shakespeare showed this awareness in his Henry IV where he said, it is the disease of not listening that I am troubled withal. In our own day of super-sophisticated, instantaneous global communication, email, the Internet, far too often we suffer from this disease of not listening, particularly when we listen from within their world, their frame of reference. Carl Rogers made this brilliant observation. He said, To be with another in this way means that for the time being you lay aside your own views and values in order to enter another's world without prejudice. In some sense, it means that you lay aside yourself. 
This can only be done by persons who are secure enough in themselves that they know they will not get lost in the world of the other. Unquote. Now look, if I'm into efficiency, how can I want to really open up to your world? Your world's so different than my world, and I don't know what your world is going to show me. I don't know how open it is. I don't know how many dimensions, how many variables it has. I can't enter your world. I lose my efficiency altogether, and that disturbs and imbalances almost everything else in my life. Thus, I don't want to really be empathic. That's too much risk. I get too involved. I've got too many things going. I must be efficient. So I've learned to adopt certain techniques. I pretend to listen, but I'm still basically preparing my response. Why? Because I am efficient, and I don't want to lose control. I give the impression that I'm listening. I look at you in the eye. I turn my head a little. I smile. I nod. I do other things to lead you to believe I'm listening. But I'm not really. Why? I can't risk it. I'm too vulnerable. Not just emotionally vulnerable because I'm unaware of what might happen and that I might have to change, but I'm also vulnerable in terms of my whole life. I'm not efficient any longer. I'm out of control. I cannot accomplish as much. I think the problem that I have with Habit 5 is probably the same problem all of us do. We are the sum of our experiences. We filter everything that comes in through that cumulative knowledge that all of those experiences that we've had, prior dealings, and we, we typically end up with a lot of preconceived notions about you know what's being said or why it's being said, but we evaluate that from our context, from our frame of reference. So in seeking to understand, consciously I know that I have to separate myself as much as possible from my frame of reference so I can get in their shoes, I can see where they're coming from. The only way I've found to deal with it is just to constantly remind myself that perception is reality and these people, even if it's not my reality, it's theirs. My mentor really for Habit 5 has been my husband. Uh, he is amazing at just listening and understanding and before he even says a word or makes a suggestion uh, it's all about understanding where I'm coming from and that is a skill I'm really trying to learn from him it's very valuable I consider myself a really good listener and I, I tend to like focus on what's really going on around me at work a lot because I don't want to miss anything and I want kinda of like cohesiveness in the group but then when I get home I want those same things but it's like I'm just mentally drained from doing it at work a lot of times and so I'm like I do that type of listening where you go you know shake your head like oh yeah yeah <laughs> I stick a video in for the kids and and my husband we work different shifts so it's really hard because you know when I'm ready to talk then he's tired and he comes home at midnight so it's like to wake me up and get some conversation and in the morning I'm rushing so I know that's a skill I really need to work on is listening to him more I know for myself, if I were to fault me at the highest point on these habits, it would be on trying to be efficient with people. When you're dealing with another person and they're living out of their own world and they want you involved in their world, it just slows down your world. In other words, we really have to get into a whole different frame of mind and attach ourselves to the higher values of what's really important and to ask, is this little time thing, this efficiency need that important? Really, did anyone on their deathbed ever wish they'd spent more time at the office? I'll tell you what they talk about. They talk about what's important, and that's relationships. With people, you can't be efficient. Remember again, 
Fast is slow with people, and slow is fast. So to seek first to understand, then to be understood, requires emotional strength. It requires patience, openness, and a desire to understand. All highly developed qualities of character. It also takes a lot of time. It really does. It's not just a quality of time, it's quantity. And the one cannot compensate for the other. But in the long run, it saves so much time. My guess is for every hour spent in correct understanding, it saves 10 to 50 to 100 hours in dealing with the problems that came from not understanding. Oh, if people only knew how much time they would save later on and what a beautiful relationship they're losing out on by not taking the time initially to truly seek to understand another. Because in some ways it's very, very hard to catch up later. But it can still be done, and I would not become discouraged. Stephen concludes his discussion of Habit 5 by relating a story that shows how seeking first to understand and truly listening to another with real intent can begin to heal and revitalize broken or ruptured relationships. One time I met a dear friend of mine. He was a professor. We had offices by each other in the same building. He was very down, very dejected. We were talking about it. He said it's because his son was so disturbing and so frustrating and so rebellious, and he didn't know what to do because he said it was truly like a cancer in his family. He said he would come in to watch the television with his son, and the boy would stand up, walk out, then come back in, turn the TV off, and walk out. That's the kind of thing that was so exasperating. And he says, I've tried my best. I really have, Stephen. I've tried to reach this son. And it's just beyond what I can do. I, I don't know what to do. I said to him, my friend, why don't you come to my class? Because right now, we're going through learning to listen empathically to another person before you attempt to explain yourself. I said, we'll take you through this, and you'll discover a whole different way of relating to your boy, because my guess is he does not feel understood. He said he would. He wanted to. It was that important to him. And he came to the class, and he caught the essence of it fast. And he told me this. He went to his son within just a few days of attending the class, and he said, son, I need to listen to you. I really don't think I understand you, and I want to. And his son said, You have never understood me, ever. And he stood up and walked out. My friend said to me, Stephen, I could not believe that. I had made such an effort. He had no idea. I had involved myself in this class to learn about this. And I really cared enormously, and that's how he treated me. And he walked out. He said, I felt like tackling him at the door and saying, you idiot, do you realize what I've done and what I'm trying to do now? He said, I didn't. But he said, I just feel like I don't know if there's any hope here. I mean, he isn't responsive at all. And I said to my friend, 
Look, he's testing your sincerity. And what has he found out? You don't really want to understand your boy. You want your boy to cooperate. You want your boy to shape up. He should, that whippersnapper. He knows full well what he's doing to our family. He knows how upsetting it is to me, how upsetting it is to everybody else. He knows full well that he shouldn't do that kind of thing. I said, listen. Listen to the energy in you. Listen to your anger. Listen to your frustration. Listen to the judgment of this boy. Do you think you can learn some empathic technique on the surface? and act with that judgment, those feelings? Well, if he'd only cooperate, I wouldn't have those feelings. If he'd only respond to what I'm trying to do. I said, you don't really want to understand your boy. Come back to the class. You've got to pay a much bigger price inside yourself. You've got to come to deeper grips of what's happening inside you until you reach the point where it makes no difference what his response is. None. You do it because it's right, not because it works. Well, our relationship was very good, and he was open to that kind of teaching. And he said, I will. I'll come back in. He came back into the class, and he took it so seriously, and went to work on it inside his life, even though it involved more than just a few days or a few weeks. It involved really a lifetime. But he realized, I have to do more than just intellectually understand it. I must do some of this. My friend caught the message. He could see that he was trying to practice the technique at the surface, but not deal with that which would produce the power to practice it consistently, regardless of its effect, regardless of the reaction of the other, so that there was utter sincerity. And he talked to me and said, I'm going to try it again. I said, he'll test your sincerity again. That's all right. I understand what you're saying here. And honestly, Stephen, he could reject every overture I make. And that would be all right. I will just keep making them. Because these are right principles. And he's worth it. And our family's worth it. He reported back. He said, I cannot describe the experience that I had with my son last night. And you could sense the tenderness of his feelings as he described this scene. He said, I sat down with my boy, and I said, I know you feel like I haven't tried to understand you, but I'm trying, and I will continue to try. And again the boy responded, through rejection by saying, you have never understood me and I don't care. And just as he was walking out of the room, I said to him, well, I'll say one thing, son. I'm sorry for the way I embarrassed you in front of your friends the other night. And the son whipped around and responded, you have no idea how much that embarrassed me. And then he teared up. And my friend said to me, Stephen, all the training that you had given, all the encouragement that you have given, did not touch me. Like the fact that I saw my son tear up. He said, because I knew he cared. And honestly, 
till that moment, I didn't think he did. And I realized, here is this little vulnerable boy who cares and who's been hurt. And he said, I responded in kind and said, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, and they began to interact, genuinely interact. And the father was just kind of not practicing empathy, but truly empathic as he sensed the hurt inside his son. And the boy went into other things. The father listened. And they continued to talk. And it got rich and authentic. And they shared and listened to each other. And the mother came in about 10.30 or 11 at night and said, It's time for bed. And the son said, Mom, we want to talk, don't we, Dad? And the dad said, Yes. And he said, we continued to talk until very, very late. And then he said to me, with tears in his eyes, the next day in the hall of the building that we office together in, he said, Stephen, last night I found my son again. Truly effective individuals recognize their own perceptual limitations and learn how to benefit from diversity. Synergistic outcomes in families and organizations frequently result from valuing differences and seeking third alternatives, as Stephen explains in Habit 6, entitled Synergize. Habit 6, Synergize, in a sense, is the fruit of the spirit of Habit 4, Think Win-Win, and the spirit of Habit 5, Seek First to Understand, Then to Be Understood. See, when 4 and 5 are in place, what happens is a very unique and powerful thing. People are beginning to interact together genuinely. They're open to each other's influence, and new insights emerge. A new dynamic is born. Something happens to them both, and it happens between them. It creates the possibility of third alternatives. It's not an either-or approach. It's not win-lose or lose-win, and it's not a compromise. Compromise is where one plus one equals one and a half. But synergy is where one plus one equals three, four, ten, fifty. There's also a negative form of synergy where one plus one equals, say, one-half. In other words, so much of the effort and energy is spent in adversarialism, in conflict, in defensive and protective communication that it literally wastes the energy of the people, of the enterprise, of the marriage, of the family. And you end up with less than what one person could do, himself or herself. Anyone who has experienced sustained conflict and contention, they know what little productivity comes out. So just remember these definitions. Synergy is where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In other words, it's the part between the parts. 
that is the key part. Synergy means you can literally produce something that neither of you could have produced before or even adding what each can produce separately. It's like having two ears. They're connected with the brain and you end up where you can sense direction, where if you had two ears unconnected, you'd have no sense of direction. One plus one literally equals three or more. Now, if you have one plus one equaling two, that's not synergy. That might be transaction. You go in and you buy gas and you give money. You transacted. That's not synergistic. You may have cooperated. That's not synergistic. Synergy is creative cooperation, where one plus one equals three, four, or ten. Negative synergy, as I mentioned, is where there is enough internal contention and adversarialism that it produces less than even what one person can produce on their own, because so much of the energy is wasted going in the wrong direction. In other words, it's counterproductive. Now, the traditional paradigm of interaction particularly when there are differences and disagreements, is to go for compromise. That's literally where most people think we end up realistically. We go for compromise. This would be where one plus one equals one and a half. And most people think that that's where we should go. That's what synergy means. Not so. That's realistic, however, if you're in a low-trust culture. But if you can cultivate the emotional bank account and the trust goes up, you don't need to go for compromise. If you'll pay the price with habits 4, 5, and 6, you'll come up with this dynamic new quality in life and in relationships called synergy. That really is the summum bonum of all of these other habits. I've enjoyed immensely the work of Professors Fisher and Yuri as they talk about two people fighting about a window. One wants the window open and the other wants it closed. One keeps opening it, the other keeps closing it it eventually becomes an ego battle between them. He opens it, walks out of the room, and the other person closes it. Then the person comes back and opens it again. It appears that there are only two positions, opened or closed. Does that seem that way to you? Or perhaps maybe a compromised position, open half the time, or perhaps open half the way? But remember, synergy is not compromise. Compromise is when one plus one equals one and a half. Synergy means that one plus one equals more than two. Now, what other solutions could you come up with? On this window issue, it seems like it's either open or it's closed or a compromise. There are many, many other solutions. They do not yet understand the problem. And you won't know what the solutions are until you get into the underlying intent or the purpose of the person. This takes habit five, where you seek first to understand. So one says... What is it that you are after? And the other responds, I like to have the fresh air. That's why I want the window open. That's what my need is. If I don't get fresh air, I almost feel claustrophobic. It means so much to me. What is it you want? The other person says, My problem is that this breeze from the outside blows my working papers about. I can't keep my things organized. And I need to have them in front of me on my desk in order to do my work efficiently. Now, what do they understand? They understand each other's need, each other's purpose, what they're trying to accomplish there, what's important to them. Now, once you understand the two things, then you say, well, now what can we do? Now, this is where habit six, synergy, comes in. What can we do that could meet your need and my need? How could we get the fresh air without the draft? 
Now think of the options and the alternatives that can come to your mind. Why don't we open the window in this other room? That would give the fresh air. And the other person says, well, I almost have to see it open or I get this claustrophobic feeling. What would you think of this if we were to organize your desk in this way and put it in this place in the room and my desk in this way? Then we'd have the fresh air and you could see it, but the draft wouldn't come over your desk. What would you think of something like that? Now notice the spirit between these two people. It's a synergistic spirit. They're creating alternatives, solutions that can meet both persons' needs. You sense that spirit? It's the spirit of empathy. It's the spirit of win-win. It's the spirit of seeking to understand. It's not defensive. It's not protective. It's not argumentative. They're not accusing each other. You see, this is the spirit of habits four, five, and six. Four is the root, R-O-O-T. Five is the root, R-O-U-T-E. And six is the fruit, synergy. It's also enormously bonding in the relationship because they created something together so that no matter what else comes around, they can deal with those difficulties, with those challenges. The key to habit six, synergize, you could almost say is to value differences. It's not something you just tolerate that there are differences or that you just accept that there are differences. It's not something that is legislated through diversity programs to respect differences, but really, deeply, you actually celebrate differences. You realize that in the differences lies this very special creative dynamic and that if we can demonstrate this mutual understanding, it will unleash this dynamic so that really strength lies in differences as long as there is a common vision and principle-centered value system. Then those differences become creative and productive. However, if there is not a common purpose, a common vision, a common set of principle-centered values, as well as a deep buy-in to that, then diversity, differences, will literally result in chaos and negative synergy, and it will spawn further prejudice and prejudgment. In other words, it becomes fundamentally counterproductive. That's why it requires the integrity of the first three habits— the development of a common purpose, a common sense of meaning, a common sense of mission, and sufficient integrity around those values that were identified, that the security goes within people so they can afford the risks of thinking win-win, of having the patience and the self-control to seek first to understand and to really be open to understanding. Then gradually you see this dynamic, magical thing happening of inventing a new spirit, inventing new approaches, third alternatives, and they are exponentially increased because of these differences. So strength literally lies in these differences. These aren't just nice words to value diversity, to value differences. These are moral imperatives for those that really want to solve problems in entirely new ways. In fact, to get new understanding of the nature of the problems themselves. Go for synergy. The moment someone disagrees with you, train yourself to say to them, or within yourself. Good. You see it differently. I want to understand. Help me understand. You come from an entirely different angle. You're intelligent. You care. I want to understand. You see the spirit of that? But if you're just into independence and into efficiency and self-control and control of others, you won't feel to say, good, I'm glad there are differences. You'll end up wanting to tell them what to think, what to feel, what to do, 
and you'll end up turning people into things. But then that violates the relationship and you don't get synergy. At best, you get compromise. At worst, you get adversarialism and fighting and negative forms of synergy where one plus one equals less than one because so much of the energy of both parties is spent on fighting each other rather than dealing directly with the issues. So we're trying to move toward a positive form of synergy that creates new options through this deep understanding and interchange of differences. That's why I value my wife's input so much to my life because she does see things differently, and I need her perspective, and I'm glad when she'll tell me it's different than the way I see it, because the wisdom that comes ultimately through the interaction is so much greater than what either of us had brought to the situation. But again, the key is to have a common vision and a common value system. Then all of the differences become a very powerful advantage, not a disadvantage. This kind of synergistic communication really is very, very taxing to people and requires considerable maturity. And if you have peripheral issues that are secondary, you may not feel like you have that level of energy and commitment to tap into that kind of energy that is needed. In fact, Sandra and I have found a very fast and easy way to deal with these secondary issues. We simply say to each other, where are you? That means to us on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is this to you? If she'll say it's a 9 and I'll say it's a 3, then we do it her way or vice versa. We make no effort to go towards synergy, toward a third alternative, because we don't have that much time and that much energy to spend in that kind of communication. We both have agreed up front that we'd be totally honest on our appraisal of how important it is. From time to time, we've also done this with our children, so that if we get in a car and we're going somewhere and we don't have time to resolve it synergistically, we might just say, how strong do you feel about it on a scale of 1 to 10? And when people always try to show respect for those who feel the strongest, and when your happiness is tied up into their happiness and fulfillment, that's truly win-win, even though you didn't get your way, because your higher interest is in their happiness. In other words, it's a kind of democracy that shows respect for the strength of feelings, the depth of feeling behind a person's opinions or desire. It's a very efficient way of solving problems rapidly without having to go towards synergistic communication on everything. This idea of synergy may be just words to you till you actually experience it. You could hear this and still tonight get embroiled with your spouse in some kind of a fight or with your kids or have some other negative interaction with someone at work and then immediately seek first to be understood. The most dreaded thing to happen in a marriage or in the family or in an organization is to destroy the ability to communicate synergistically and to solve problems this way. You see, we always see the world not as it is, but as we are. So we must constantly seek to understand, and most of us tend to think we see the world as it is, that we're objective, and that we're looking through our lens of wisdom and experience, but in fact we're looking through our lens of conditioning, a prior scripting. We referred to that as a paradigm before, a pair of glasses, a frame of reference out of which we operate, the implicit assumptions that we operate on or the map. The key to objectivity is to realize we're subjective. It's to be aware. I do not see the world as it is. I see the world as I am. Therefore, if there is a difference, what about it? Someone else sees it differently based upon their experiences. I need their data. 
So this concept of valuing differences is not just a good idea. It's not just something that brings unity. It's something that creates, through cooperative communication processes, whole new options, new alternatives, new solutions, new insights, far better solutions. And this idea of humility and accepting our subjective involvement is not just some nice principle. It is a reality that people see things differently, and we all need access to that. It's through the interaction of the spirit of habit four, think win-win. Habit five, the spirit of seeking first to understand, then to be understood. And as most people respectfully, empathically communicate with each other back and forth, something new happens. I honestly believe that you can take about any issue you want where there are profound differences and create a third alternative if people will practice habits four, five, and six. Because in those habits lie the capability of solving literally any human problem. Effective people are involved in constant renewal and improvement in all four dimensions of life, which include the physical, the mental, the spiritual, and the social-emotional dimensions. Stephen explains in this final habit, Habit 7, entitled Sharpen the Saw, why constant nourishment of our four dimensions is essential to combat the inevitable effects of complacency and stagnation. The final habit, Habit 7, Sharpen the Saw, is the habit of renewal. What are you doing? Well, can't you see I'm sawing down this tree? Oh, I'll bet you're tired. I am. Well, uh, uh, how long have you been doing it? Oh, I don't know, two, three hours? I'll bet you're beat. Boy, I'll say, I've never been so tired. Well, why don't you sharpen the saw? I'm too busy sawing, dum-dum. Have you ever been too busy driving to take time to get gas? The opposite of sharpening the saw is to leave it dull until the blade breaks, until the mind becomes dull, the spirit insensitive, the body flabby, where everything has gone to pot, literally and figuratively. To sharpen the saw is basically to say, I'm going to keep renewing myself and keeping my entire life in balance. This concept of sharpening the saw applies to four levels, personally, interpersonally, managerially, organizationally. It's fundamentally the concept of continuous improvement, continuous learning, forever getting better. Habit seven, in a sense, is the habit that focuses on production capability. Habit seven, if done right, automatically renews and develops the other six habits because it takes a high level of proactivity and of responsibility and initiative to consistently sharpen the saw. I do not know of one activity that has as great a leverage factor in life as Habit 7. Look on it this way. Habit 7 moves the fulcrum over. You may only spend a few hours in an entire week, which is made up of 168 hours, but those few hours will affect the quality the productivity, the satisfaction, the quality of relationships, the quality of decision-making of every other hour. That's like moving the fulcrum over. But here's the problem. Habit 7 lies in quadrant 2. It's important. However, it's not urgent. That's why most people neglect it. In fact, 
all of the habits lie in quadrant two. They're all terribly important, but not urgent. And habit seven, which in a sense enables all the other six habits to be constantly renewed, obviously is important, but not urgent. It does not act upon us. We must act upon it. Otherwise, if we neglect this, our lives become disordered. We do things unsystematically. We hit and miss. And then we end up with imbalanced lives and imbalanced organizations that focus myopically only on one dimension. Basically, there are four dimensions in life. The body, the mind, the spirit, and our relationships. That is the social-emotional side. The same thing applies to organizations. There are the same four dimensions. It has its physical, or what we might call its economic side, to produce the bottom line towards some mission within a certain value system. That is the spiritual side. It must also have its culture of high trust. That's the social side. In order to have empowerment in the development and use of people's talents, that's the mental side. So those are the same four dimensions. In fact, if you study all of history, philosophy, religion, and psychology, inevitably you'll find the same dimensions constantly mentioned, the physical, mental, spiritual, and social-emotional. But all four needs need to be attended to, to be renewed and nurtured in a consistent and regular and balanced way in order to properly sharpen the saw. I am a marathon runner, and in order to run a marathon, I have to plan for it and train for it and get ready for it and do the things around good nutrition and enough sleep and scheduling the time for that. So just in this activity that for me starts out being physically sharpening the saw, a whole lot more things have grown from that. And so it can be incredibly rewarding. And if I didn't have that, if I didn't do that, I would not be good in the other things. Part of my renewal process, part of sharpening the saw for me, is attending college. I'm currently working on another degree, and after I finish this one, I'll probably start another one. I'm a lifelong learner. It's how I invest in myself. So when I'm feeling stressed, for me, a textbook can be very relaxing. It's uh, therapy. These are the ways that I sharpen the saw. I start the morning by doing some kind of meditation and then read something that is inspirational for me that I hope will carry over in the day. But the things that interest me right now are inspirational, spiritual things and personal growth. Let's look at each one in turn. Under physical, we usually think about these elements of renewal. Exercise, nutrition, and stress management so that we're not crippled and paralyzed from being overstressed, overtaxed, worn out, burned out. Regarding exercise, there is more and more consciousness throughout all society about the importance of it and the effect it has upon our body, upon our sense of well-being, our fitness. But you know the main benefit isn't necessarily physical fitness. It's what happens to your self-esteem. It's what happens to your sense of being in control of your life. It's the spillover effect into the other dimensions, the emotional, the social, and the spiritual that often are the primary benefits of physical exercise. Even beyond physical fitness, as great as that is, beyond feeling better, looking better, and nutrition is also becoming increasingly important where we learn to subordinate 
taste to nutrition, to what is good for us, and people inwardly know so much that they do not now do. Let's look at stress for a moment. There's so much written about it and so many programs that focus on a number of different things such as meditation, biofeedback, exercise, and so forth. And I think these are all excellent. But I'm convinced that the greatest stress management idea I have ever learned lies in having a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, and a sense of integrity around a value system. In the language of Hans Selye, the international expert on stress, to have this kind of meaningful work creates eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, not distress. And eustress strengthens the immune systems, slows down the degenerative forces of the body, and strengthens our whole ability to cope with the realities of life. I also believe that the stress of a conscience that has been violated again and again transcends by far the stress of deadlines, pressing meetings, and having a dozen balls in the air at the same time. So I think we should deal with both sides of stress, the environmental and the profoundly personal, in cultivating a sense of meaning, of purpose, and of living by our conscience around principle-centered values. Now let's look at the mental dimension. To put forth a great effort to keep our minds vital, alert, and alive. To get into reading, to turn the television way down. There's good in some of it, but too much of it is like an open sewer pouring its contents into the home with all the violence and promiscuity and betrayal and filth and incivility in behavior and language. I'm convinced that excessive television can tend to keep family members away from reading, from serious and fun family interaction. If you sense your family is too addicted to it or if you're too addicted to television, try this, go cold turkey off it for a month and watch the withdrawal screams. It'll tell you about the level of your addictions. Then when the withdrawal pains have gone, go back to it in appropriate and careful and planned ways so that its entertainment and educational benefits come into the family without all of its negative sides. Early on with our children, we involved them in an awareness of what happens to a family. They looked at the hard data and then essentially walked out of the room and they came up with the resolve to have very little television, no more than an hour a day, and instead to focus on homework, reading, development, social interaction. And I'm convinced it has made a significant difference in our family life. Get back to reading. Give yourself the challenge of reading a book a month and then perhaps a book a week, and read broadly, widely, deeply, even outside your own comfort zone, so that you're constantly expanding and deepening your horizons. And writing is one of the most powerful mental tools to learn to write. In fact, I don't know any discipline of the mind as powerful as writing, more demanding, taking more concentration of effort. I believe that what exercise is to the body, reading is to the mind, but writing is like concentrated mental exercise because you have to gather and distill and crystallize into words for another person's mind, and it causes you to think empathically and to get very conscious about the communication processes. I commend to you also the keeping of a journal, a personal history. I commend to you writing letters again for the art of letter writing it's just about gone with the convenience of the telephone and more recently the email and the internet. But learning to express your thoughts deeply and beautifully to other people 
is one of the great arts in life. With all the changes that are taking place in the world today where it's believed generally that most professions have a half-life of about four years, it takes constant commitment to learning, to education, and to paying the price in deep thinking and reading just to keep abreast, just to keep up on what's happening. But to get ahead of what's happening requires even more mental concentration, effort, and energy. The spiritual dimension is a very private area. People do it in their own way, but basically it means to renew yourself in your value system, in your sense of purpose and meaning and vision, in what you deeply, deeply believe in and value, what you treasure. Work on this mission statement. Work diligently on it until it gradually crystallizes within you. When it gets settled into your core, then keep going back to it exploring it to see if it still is relevant to your present situation. You write it as if it will be forever, but you have to keep looking at it. You try to make it up of principles that are timeless and universal and self-explanatory. Sometimes it helps to get into nature, to get into meadows, in forests, at an ocean, or even in visual images of these things, so that you're always being grounded into the earth. There's a power that comes from this that does not come from artificial made things. Sometimes you can renew it by renewing your commitments, your vows to your loved ones, to whatever is important and sacred to you. Sometimes you can renew your spirit by studying the great literature that inspires you, from praying and pondering, from trying to get a sense of reaching to a higher level, of making a difference, of contributing, of just getting out of your own world and your own satisfactions. Reading has entertainment value, to be sure, but to try to get inspirational reading, that kind of reading that truly edifies and uplifts your spirit, that educates your conscience and makes you very sensitive to what is right and what is wrong and what can be done and what the potential is inside another person, so that you see them with a believing heart and so that your moral sense is deep and you can detect whenever you violate it so that you can return to that which is right and proper. Read the great literature of your own faith tradition or your intellectual tradition, literature that you love, that inspires you. Read the biographies and autobiographies of the people you identify with. Model after them. Think about the great heroes of your life and the qualities you admire most about them so that you can constantly feed and educate your conscience and live by it day in and day out. To be courageous in the hard moments, little by little, the conscience is made strong and viable and powerful. It gives you tremendous social courage as well. You can learn to say no to all kinds of temptations and expedient compromising paths. Your conscience becomes strong. It feeds you. It feeds your sense of identity and worth. It gives you a sense of abundance so that your sense of worth does not come from being compared. All of this is part of the spiritual sharpening of the saw. As I mentioned, all people do it differently. It is such a private and personal world. But it must not be neglected because it is part of our very natures. Now finally, let's look at the social-emotional dimension. Social means your relationships with others. And emotional refers to your relationship with yourself in relation to others as well as with yourself. One of the most powerful action steps you can take after today is to begin the process of rebuilding a broken relationship you care about enormously. Reach out to touch the one that tests you the very most. 
rebuild that relationship you care so much about, but which is strained and which has been wounded. Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations of an earlier era, put it this way, It is more noble to give yourself completely to one individual than to labor diligently for the salvation of the masses. In other words, you can be very dedicated for many causes out there, worthy causes, projects, business activities, spending 10, 12, 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week, and yet not have a meaningful relationship with your own teenage son. And that will eat at you. It weakens your fiber and your will. It affects the totality of your life in some sense. If there's a sense of enmity within you, it will spread out and affect other things. Negative energy is like a metastasizing cancer that spreads out and affects the totality of our life. Positive energy also has the same pervasive effect on everything in our life. So if you can nurture all of the key relationships of your life, it is amazing the kind of moral and social courage it gives you in other relationships, business, community, church, or whatever. You'll also find that in your efforts to rebuild some one relationship you care about a great deal, that it creates more nobility of character within that will affect all other relationships. The key, in a sense, to the 99 is the one because everyone is a one. The key to the many is the one. Why? Because what you have to do to develop and educate and discipline your character affects everything that you do in your life. It literally has exponential leveraging capacity in all relationships. The home is usually the perfect place for the social-emotional renewal. Spending time together at the family dinner, having special family traditions, holidays, birthdays, playing together, relaxing together, worshiping together, laughing, empathically listening to each other, honoring each other, lifting each other up when there is discouragement and despair, encouraging each other, nurturing each other's emotional bank account, affirming each other. All of this is so vital and part of this social and emotional sharpening the saw. So to be committed to habit seven is to continuously jumpstart your own mind and spirit and body and your relationships on a consistent basis. And that, to me, is the first early commitment to make now. Don't ever neglect sharpening the saw. Don't come up with reasons for not doing it. Pay the price, my friends. The dividends are unbelievably marvelous. Stephen now concludes his discussion of the seven habits by sharing several challenges that will help you begin to implement these habits and principles in your life. Let me share with you now a few thoughts and challenges to encourage you in the process of developing these habits. One of the most important things you can do right now is to begin to share these ideas with others. When you teach once, you learn twice. You learn better. It deepens your commitment to apply. It also unfreezes the labels that people have of you because they see you growing and learning, and they give you new opportunities to change and to become better. So when you teach other people and share with your family, your work associates, and others who might have an interest, 
That's when the real learning begins to take place. It is in the teaching and in the sharing and in the living. Sometimes it helps to focus on a single habit. You don't try to change everything at once. However, you'll find that the habits are so interwoven that any time you begin to work on one of them in a significant deep way, it will affect all of the rest. But start with those things that are most important for you to work on right now. And remember, don't ever give up. Be patient. A strong character is not developed overnight. Choose to live your life based upon principles. All of the seven habits are based on universal principles which have endured through the ages. How do you know that they are universal, timeless, and self-evident? Just try arguing against any one of them and imagine a highly effective person with no sense of responsibility, habit one, no vision, habit two, no integrity, habit three, no mutual respect, habit four, no mutual understanding, habit five, no creative cooperation, habit six, no renewal, habit seven. The power of these habits is in the doing, in the living, in the continuous day-by-day -day improvements. It's a constant effort. We need to make these habits and these principles a part of our very life. But it takes great patience. Consider the Chinese bamboo tree that is planted and you see nothing for four years except a little bulb and a little shoot coming from it. But literally you work diligently day in and day out to optimize the whole growing situation and you see nothing. On the fifth year the Chinese bamboo tree grows up to 80 feet. All of the growth goes above the ground, where before all of the growth went below the ground. To some degree, there is some relevance here. The first three habits of the private victory are, in a sense, below the ground. And above the ground represents habits four, five, and six and our relationships with other people. Another thing I'm sure you've learned about these habits is that you already know them. They already live in your own heart. In fact, I love the quote from T.S. Eliot, who identified this deep inner knowing and awareness. He said, We must never cease from exploring, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we began and know the place for the first time. Again, you see in a very real sense, you already know these habits in your heart. But the exciting thing is to embark on a lifelong adventure of learning them, of sharing them, of literally internalizing them, and living them to the point that you can experience the magnificent fruits that will come in the totality of your lives and in all of your relationships. This concludes the 7 Habits of Highly Effective People audio learning program. We hope Stephen's presentation has helped deepen your understanding and commitment to implement these habits and principles in day-to-day -day life at home and at work. To request a free catalog or additional information about Covey Leadership Center products, programs, and services, please call 1-800-553-8889.